Hey, wonderful people! This is the fifteenth episode of Misfits, where it is my job to speak with rebels, troublemakers, and the unconventionals in Singapore. Try to see things as how they see it, and learn from them. Some of these individuals include Danny Wong, who started a million-dollar cupcake empire. Betty Lee, who at the age of sixty went backpacking around the world for four hundred days. Lolik Ving. And a whole lot more. A warning: This episode includes very strong language and some sexual content. So if you have kids around, I would advise listening another time. Today on the show we have Beyond Sheng, the chef owner of Artichoke Restaurant, Bird Bird, and an ice cream brand, Nana Pop. Their Instagram feed makes my stomach growl. So Beyond Sheng is also the author of Artichoke Cookbook and writes a monthly column titled Beyond Says for Time Out Magazine. On the site, he is a lecturer at the Culinary Institute of America. In this conversation, we spoke about the story of how Beyond got robbed while working in the Seven Eleven store, advice on structuring rental agreement, how Beyond lost two hundred and thirty thousand in three months with overdose, and why does Beyond insist on taking his staff on overseas trips, and lots more. Without further ado, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Beyond Shen. You know, I've been really wanting to speak to you for a while now, because I think more than just being a chef, like you embody this whole new wave of value that the new generation of chef in Singapore, and as one of my chef friend best describe it, it's like coming out of a Chinese slavery kitchen and embracing this new generation of how chef should be or. Or come to be, <laughs> and uh, you also wrote a a, a book. Uh, let me stick it up right here, Artichoke. Um, so for those of you who wants to get the book, don't buy it at any bookstores. You can go to the restaurant. Yeah, it comes straight to me. Yes, buy it. <laughs> um, so you wrote a book. You're a chef, yep. and but despite all that, you also uh, write a column in Time Out, and not even. Enough. You teach in CIA, which is the Culinary Institute. Culinary Institute of America. Yeah, not the other CIA. Mm. Yep. And now there's a new TV show, Brocation. Brocation, which is premiering at the moment, every Wednesday night. <laughs> every Wednesday night, 9 p.m. Hey, uh-huh. 9 p.m. on the Kicks Channel Five One Eight, Star Hub, <laughs> and Three Nine One. I think. <laughs> Singtel Meal. You'll okay. find it. Yeah. <laughs> So you know, whenever I have guests on the show, I always like to ask about their secret origin story. You know, if you can uh, paint a picture of your or, of your childhood, or you know, take a step and try to describe it. Okay. Yeah. So what? Right from the time I was a kid, or Just any when you growing up. As okay. A, as a well, kid. let's talk about what's relevant to you know where where I am today. Uh, I, I was just a regular you know Singaporean kid growing up. Uh, when I was three years old. My mother asked me on my birthday, "What do you want to be when you grow up?" You know how parents do that. 
uh, and I said, I want to be a snowman. And uh, she just laughed and she said, okay, I'll try again next year. So she tried again on my fourth birthday and she said, Bjorn, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, mommy, I want to be a rice cooker. Not the appliance. In my mind at the time, rice cooker was the person in the kitchen cooking rice. Right, so the rice say, cook. Yeah, I mean, or not, not, not just rice, but you know, when you say cook rice, it means just cook dinner. Oh. Or cook lunch or whatever. The, the person in the kitchen cooking. Uh-huh. So that's what I told her when I was four. I want to be a rice cooker. And, and in, my, in my, you know, uh, toddler mind at that time, it was, I want to be a cook. Yeah. I want to be a chef, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, so it's one of those things, you know, uh, people who are doctors always say, oh, I had a calling. I think, you know, I can quite safely say I had a calling as well. What happened between three to four that made you change from snowman to a rice cooker? I was just stupid at three. Okay, so uh, you were smarter, you gained one I was, year. I was one year smarter. I was, I was 25% smarter by four. Uh-huh. One, one year smarter. <laughs> Did mom try again on a five? Uh, no, she, that, that was it. Okay, she yeah. was just happy to answer. It, it, was, it was a reasonable answer. It was a reasonable answer. So she made me... Uh, she, my mom was never one of those you know, cooks who... Uh, who, who she, she liked to cook, yeah? But she wasn't like a natural, the one who could do it by feel and all that. She read a lot of cookbooks and all that. So she would make me pancakes and, and I would try and uh, make a pancake in the shape of a car. But it turned out looking more like a poodle instead, you know. Uh, no more, just try to paint. Yeah, uh, muck around in the kitchen from an early age. Uh, in order to get me off her back, she would put me at the sink to wash rice. Just because I was, you know, so hyper. So she would say, okay, Bjorn, wash this rice. And, and, and I would take like one hour with the rice, just washing it. And she would tell me, wash it till the water goes clear. And as you know, it can never go completely clear. And then no. I always bring her, you know, mommy, is it okay? And she would be like, no, it's not okay yet. You wash it some more. So <laughs> just, just, to, just to keep me occupied for as long as she could. So I'll be washing rice a lot. Uh, that, that's how it all started, you know. Yeah, and mom didn't, I mean, mom didn't give you the pressure of any, like, Singaporean mom. Oh, yeah. Like, uh, she but she thought, was happy to answer. No, but she thought I was joking. Oh. That's the thing. You know, I was always interested in cooking and she was always uh, excited about my interest in cooking until I told her I wanted to do it for a living. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I was like, oh, no. And, and if you can, like, you know, is there any funny story of your younger self that sort of, like, reflected who you are today, like just a story that sort of symbolizes how you are today as beyond like, you know, 30, 20 years down the road. Uh, funny story that symbolizes what I am today, yeah? My, I, I don't even know what I am today. So I'm trying to think back to a story. Closest resembles Okay, it's a funny story, but I don't know if it really resembles That's fine. Yeah, funny story is good. So me and a good friend were at the Jurong Bird Park when we were, I think we were probably in like primary three or primary four. We were at the Jurong Bird Park and there was this big bouncy castle, right? Wow. And like massive bouncy castle and there's all these kids inside. And on the outside of this bouncy castle, there were two strings. And there was a big sign there saying, do not touch. The strings? The strings. Got it. So me and him were like, uh, 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 what's this string do? Uh, uh, and we pulled the strings. What happened? And the entire bouncy castle collapsed. And it was like a national catastrophe. 
Because all the parents, the kids were screaming and crying inside. The four walls of the bouncy castle came down and basically engulfed everyone inside. And parents were freaking out. Organizers were freaking out. Security was coming by. Me and my friend just ran the fuck out of there. <laughs> no one knew? No one knew. Mom, even mom didn't know. The, 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 I don't think that was the age of security cameras. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Uh, so it, it it was it was hilarious because we just ran off to the side, but then we we looked back and watched. <laughs> no, I think when I when I like it was some up, action movie or something. I'm kind of like yeah. you too, like just a bit like rebellious and like trying to like push the line and see where the line is. I remember just I well, I had no idea why I do it, but I remember when I was in secondary school, I threw like a fire extinguisher yeah. into the bin for no reasons. Yeah. Someone found it, and then I became good friends with discipline master. Like, and I report to him every morning for, for nothing, right? For, I don't know why I did you don't, it. You don't. You, like I took. I took the door off the toilet for nothing. <laughs> we stole the door from the toilet in school. After the exams finished, we flying kicked the little tree until the tree came down. <laughs> we just took turns flying, kick, flying kicking a tree until the tree until the tree broke, and we were just happy. I mean, that, that's 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 the kind of stuff I still do today. <laughs> no, I think I I, I I I would like to do more of that too. <laughs> Um, no, those those are childhood childhood stories that you know you can you can remember for the rest of your life and oh man so many so many and no fast forward a little bit to yeah. um, two thousand six yeah uh, you were you went up in, in okay. Brisbane was uh, it two thousand six was it two thousand six you're in uh, university okay um, well maybe well Brisbane two thousand two thousand two two thousand two sorry two thousand six you graduated yeah, and then you continued to pro probably probably right. Yeah. So how like you know how do you end up in a in a, a place with good sushi rolls and fake beaches? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what happened there? Um, so I, you know, I I sucked at Chinese, so I couldn't study in Singapore. Oh, uh, they give you three chances to pass your Chinese. <laughs> I, I did my A levels in JC, uh, and and I had three chances to pass, and you, all you needed was like a D seven. Yeah, I got Just memorizing. I got F nine three times. Oh I wasn't even trying. Okay. As I wasn't trying to get F nine, I, I was I was sincerely, genuinely trying to pass it. Okay, you know, because I wanted to go to school locally, uh, but I could not pass it. I got F nine three times. And so, so, like the rest of the times that you retook, do you retook only Chinese or you take the with the whole? No, you just take Chinese. You just oh, take, and even then, it's yeah, I was depressing because all my friends all passed it already. All most of my friends passed it. Now I was the only idiot there, still trying to pass it so that I could get to a local, you know, university. Uh, but of course, I could not pass it. So I had to think about what I wanted to do. I, I completely bombed my A levels. I had horrible results in my A levels. Uh, and no uh, good subjects. Or I got I got CCB, okay. which was not a, not a good grade. Yeah, my preliminaries, I got EFF. So, yeah, that was horrible. Uh, so, I thought about it a little bit. Uh, that was the turning point in my life where, you know, I was cooking a lot for my uh, friends and all that at home. I was, it's like, it was like my party trick, you know. Uh, I could cook, you know. It was the thing that I impressed girls with back then. Does it work? Uh, no, they just ended up friend-zoning me. <laughs> uh, I was the friend-zoning guy. Uh, oh, Bjorn, you can cook. Can you cook for me and my boyfriend? <laughs> the kind of thing. Uh, so anyway, uh, so I was cooking a lot, you know, um, and it just did not dawn on me that I could turn that into a career. So one day, a good friend of mine, his name was Alex. He said, "Hey Bjorn, you cook so much. Why don't you just become a chef?" Like what? What you know? 
Uh, I wanted to go study like I don't know. I wanted to go study like, interior design or industrial design at the time or whatever. But which still is a pretty cool course. Yeah, and, but then he said, "Why don't you go become a chef?" And suddenly I'm like, "What? You can do that? <laughs> you know, you 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 can do that professionally?" Uh, so he said, "Yeah, uh, if you want to, I got a friend who uh, who who has a cafe at Tanglin Mall, and uh, I can hook you up with him uh, for your first job." So I'm like, hell yeah, let's do that, you know. So I actually went for that interview. I got my first job. Ended up washing dishes. Ended up being a dishwashing job. Uh, I washed dishes for like three months. Three months. Uh, but on the side, I was allowed to cut chilies and garlic and all that. So I was like, yeah, okay, you know, I'm getting some action there. Yeah. Uh, three months in, the head chef left. Like he, he just didn't show up. So everyone moved up a rank. <laughs> everyone moved up a rank. I graduated from washing dishes to being on the station where I was cutting more than just chilies and garlic. I was cutting onions, <laughs> right? And I was, I was like peeling shrimp and all that kind of stuff. So that was really cool. I enjoyed my time even though I was being paid like two fifty an hour. Uh, you weren't there for the money, were you? I wasn't there for money. I was getting cuts every single day. I was trying to, at that point, convince my parents that, you know, I, yeah, okay, I fucked my A-levels, but I want to go become a chef now. And they weren't really convinced, you know. Uh, but through that job and, and my perseverance at that job, despite two fifty an hour, coming home smelling like garlic and, and, and you know, bleeding everywhere, um, that I really wanted it. That I really, really wanted it. So uh, they let me carry on doing what made, do you, I mean, what made you pull through that period? Because I, I mean, I don't think anyone enjoys washing dishes and getting paid two fifty an hour. I actually kind of liked washing dishes. Yeah. I mean, as long as I was in the kitchen, I liked it. I mean, the moment I stepped in, I knew this was my environment, you know? So uh, that, that, that's how I uh, ended up in the kitchen for the first time. Uh, and I just carried on that way. Uh, of course, in in order to fulfill my uh, my 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 parental uh, obligations or obligations to my parents, you know, I had to do the whole university thing. So I had to go to the University of Queensland. I had to go study hospitality because that was closely linked to you know being able to cook. So I went to uh, I went to Brisbane, and I studied in Brisbane, and I was working in the cafes all the way through my. Uh, through my education, I got my PR, Australian Permanent Residency, at some point. And the moment I got it, I started studying part-time and working full-time. Right, because that was actually a legitimate like, career where you actually get paid a lot more than what you get paid in Singapore. Of course, I was, and I was working night shift at 7-Eleven. Oh, wow. My parents don't know that, but the pay was great. The pay was great, right? So I was, working, I was, I was going to university for a few hours a day. Mm-hmm. After that, I'd finish at about 3 or 4, I'd go over to the cafe that I was working at, work the dinner shift, finish the dinner shift at about 10, 11, now go into 7, 11. How do you even get the PR? Because it was so easy back then. Yeah. You just needed someone who was a relative who was already a citizen or a PR, a uh, good reference. Yeah. You know, you were studying the right course or whatever it was. And you, you, you applied and within, you know, I got mine in like 9 months. So, so it, was, um, it was really good because it allowed me to, uh, to slow things down over there. And uh, yeah, stay there as long as I could, <laughs> and 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 earn thirty five dollars an hour at Seven Eleven oh midnight shift. Thirty five dollars really is even way higher than. Oh, it's great! It's great. It was, I got robbed a couple of times. Uh, Did you? No way. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, the boss was on cool. one point. 
no, uh, with, with things like sticks and bats and all. Uh, but um, boss was cool. He said, "Look, if anyone comes in, we got insurance. So don't get, don't get yourself hurt. Just just give, just give, yeah, whatever they want, just give. You know. So yeah, you know, drunk guys come in at night with with a baseball bat. Yeah, yeah cool. Just take whatever you want, man. You know. What what was it racist back then in uh, yeah. Brisbane? Uh, not 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 so bad. Not so bad. Okay. Not so bad. Especially when you let people start taking whatever they want, they're, they're cool. Right. <laughs> they they give each other a high five after that. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, man. Grab, grab, grab you know, some what, are you, what are you doing in the CCTV camera? I saw you giving <laughs> high five to that guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, like, what, after, so you spent four years, four spent years. Seven years in Brisbane. Seven years in Brisbane. Spent seven years but in Brisbane. But that's because of the masters, right? Then I went on and did a masters because I, you see, sort of thing is this. I had classmates who were like really studious, who studied really hard, did all their projects, did all their homework. I was like fucking off right after school, going to work in a cafe and working at 7-Eleven the whole night, sleeping on the chair at 7-Eleven, going home to shower, go straight back to uni the next day. Uh, so I was, I was always sleeping in lectures. I was never, never the student at the front of the class or whatever. Uh, I, I, my attendance was horrible. And yet I graduated on the dean's list. Like top five percent of the of the, of the of the class or whatever. How, how how what happened there? Exactly. Were you were you Asian? Is that what it is? Nah, it was a, next level Asian stuff. Nah, uh, no, I don't know. I don't know what happened. So exactly, I did not know what happened. I was completely disturbed. I was curious. I felt bad for my other friends who were studying so hard, who did not even work part time jobs and all that. Here I was with two with two jobs, you know, uh, and so I decided to do a masters and see if I could try it out again. And see if I could do it again. Okay. See if I could figure it out. But and mom definitely said, yes, go for it. And she was like, yeah, all right. You know, maybe you'll finally decide to do something smart, you know, and, 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 and stop cooking. <laughs> so I decided to do a master's in marketing. And I wanted to test myself again whether or not I could accomplish what I did the last time. Uh, was, yeah, whether it was a one-time fluke. Whether I lucked out or whether whether some somewhere somehow someone got my grades wrong in the system and, and I got someone else's grade in, in the end, I did it again. Oh my god! Again, I did it again with two jobs. Oh, by that time I I stopped uh, cooking uh, and working in Seven Eleven because the university because of my good grades I was engaged by the university to teach. Oh. Uh, and I was again being paid like thirty eight an hour or something. So that's better than. So it's like three bucks better than. Yeah, <laughs> an hour better than my seven eleven job. So yeah, I was a, I was a what do you call a tutor? Do you enjoy uh, your masters? I enjoyed my masters um, because it was uh, yeah, so it was starting to set in. It was really starting to set in. You know, my my heroes before that were chefs and all that. My heroes when I was doing my masters were people like published authors and all that. I start my my mind suddenly switched to uh, academia. Uh, I did a master's, I did a thesis during my master's, which was I took my master's even further than, than other people took their master's degree. So I've got an advanced master's, so to speak. You know, that's what that's what it is on paper. It's called an advanced master's because you did a thesis on top of that, on yeah. top of your coursework and all that. Uh, again, I was a part-time student because um, I was a PR, I could space it out. Um, so I spent a lot of my time teaching at university. There was one, there was one particular semester I was teaching seven subjects. That's a lot. Seven subjects on top of my own. Right. And you do it Stop. not because of money? Or do you I was doing it for the money. Okay. Yeah. I, <laughs> I thought you enjoyed teaching. I was doing it for the money. Okay. Absolutely. 
<laughs> What's good pay? Ah, fuck that. Money's good. You, you know? <laughs> yeah, money's good. Yeah. For sure. Um, no, so I, yeah, yeah. go for it. So anyway, I, I finished my master's again, uh, again on the dean's list. Again. I was like, fuck this. I'm going to do a PhD. Oh. Right? <laughs> it's, yeah. It's like, it's like kid found out he was Superman or something like that. Yeah. Like, you know? Uh, so... I actually started discussing a PhD with, uh, with... Wait, so this time around, do you think it was still a fluke or, you know, you were actually like convinced? No, I was kind of a little bit more convinced that there was something going on. Okay. You know? I don't know that there was, you know... I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, I, my mind was just blown. I didn't understand how I did it, you know? Uh, I, I kind of thought that I figured out a way to like answer exam questions or, or, or write essays or whatever that, that no one else knew how so I felt like I had this power which I didn't understand that I could just keep using over and over again so I actually started discussing a PhD okay with with my mentor at that time who was my lecturer in yeah. my undergrad days and who was my boss is, is he Richard Robinson Richard Robinson no way okay yeah I was wanting to ask who's this mysterious man yeah yeah is, is your mentor and so teacher. this bugger was my lecturer in my undergraduate days. He taught me uh, a couple of subjects, food and beverage management being one of them. And that was the only class in my entire uh, undergraduate days where I was actually switched on. You know, it was relevant to me. Mm. Um, and this guy was an ex-executive chef before retiring from the F&B world to go and teach. He was getting his PhD at the time when he was teaching. So I looked up to him. Because here was a guy who reached the, the peak at, in, in, in one field and then moved over to, uh, to teach at university. So I always looked up to him a lot. He eventually became my thesis supervisor during my master's. And he was the first one, so he was like the second one to approach me to teach subjects for him when I was doing my master's. So I ended up teaching the same course that I did for him in, undergrad, in, in my undergraduate days. I ended up teaching for him while I was, while I was doing my master's. Mm. Yeah. Obviously, you must be good at um, the subject, if not, he wouldn't be. Well, I mean, I, I was, I think, one, probably one of his top students in, in class for that particular subject, you know. But wow. I had that interest, so it was easy. So anyway, Richard Robinson, mm -hmm. I started discussing a PhD topic with Richard Robinson, you know. And um, turning point came when uh, Richard and I went out to cook in the countryside because he, he being an ex-superstar, was invited now and then to do gigs, you know, to go and cook again. So uh, there was a time when we went down to Stanthorpe, which is like the wine producing region of Queensland. Uh, he was invited to uh, uh, this place called something Gully, uh, Fern Gully or something. Anyway, I can't remember exactly the name of the estate, but he was invited down to a wine estate to cook dinner. And the moment I heard about it, I'm like, Richard, I'm coming with you. I'm going to assist you. I don't care. You know, I, you don't have to pay me. I'm just going to go there and help you because I missed being in the kitchen. Right. After having, you know, come out of the kitchen for a while. So I told him, Richard, I'm coming with you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you execute your vision. I don't care what your vision is. Let me be your sous chef for that, for that event. So he said, yeah, come along. So I, came, I went along and we went out and we did that event. Uh, and when we were there, suddenly that, 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 that time that I got to reconnect with cooking and ingredients and all that, kind of convinced me that I was moving a little bit too fast for my own good with the whole academia thing. Mm. That I still was young, that I still had, you know, physical energy. That I still could go back to the kitchen and cook. Mm. Because back then, at that point, you are convinced that you're good at uh, studying. Yeah. And you could 
go on to eventually new teach or but then I thought about it after that, you know, that 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 uh, that that event that I did with Richard, which was this very successful event. We put out very good food. We impressed the people there. And I thought about it. I said, look, you know, PhDs, I can come back to this anytime, you know. And I looked around at all my, you know, colleagues and and people, other people doing PhDs. They all had like gray hair, oh. or they were all like ten years older than me. I'm like, shit. I feel like, I feel like a bit of an imposter yeah. if I do this now. I mean, here you got this stupid twenty what, 27-year-old 20, kid who's, do, who's doing a PhD and going out to teach without any like so-called real-world experience apart from my stupid part-time jobs at 7-Eleven and at, at, at restaurants and cafes. So I said, look, you know, uh, I told Richard, hey, is it okay if we put my PhD plans on hold? Uh, because I don't think I'm ready for this. In fact, I want to do something with my actual physical energy now that I can. You know, and he said, Bjorn, that's such a good idea. <laughs> I just never told you that before. <laughs> yeah. He said, go out there, go into the world and come back, come back to me in a few years time. Wow. You know, and it, it, it seems almost like this Richard is such a cool, you know, and down to a pretty chill yeah, person. Yeah. yeah. Despite being a professor or a sort, there's no like a, a clear line between, oh, I, I'm, I'm a sensei or, you know. Like, we're just friends. No, no, we, we, we were really operating on that sort of basis. I mean, we did a lot of research projects together. I was his data entry bitch. I did a lot of data entry for him. I mean, he was my boss, but he was also like, a, I consider him like a, a, a father figure and friend. Yeah. You know, he visits me now when I'm in Singapore. He's, oh. he's coming again in January, you know. So we, we stay in touch a lot. Um, so yeah, a real cool guy. And he told me, Beyond, go, go do your thing. And and you can PhD can wait, yeah. So before we move on to Ali Chok, is there any other mentors or incidents that you know you attribute, you know your success or the way how you see the world, or your perspective to, at, to that moment in time other than Richard? Wow, uh, Richard being a very big one. Uh, my grandfather. My grandfather has always been a big support, you know. Uh, my grandfather came from a very poor background, but he made his way up, you know. He, um, he was the youngest son out of his own father's, I think, like nine wives. Nine wives and the youngest? And he was the son of the last wife. Okay. And, and the last one. So basically, he didn't get any love for he. Right. Or whatever he, you know, and yeah. that wife I think wasn't even legit. Oh, yeah, it wasn't like official or whatever. Okay. So he didn't get anything from his father at all, mm -hmm. except that he got to come to Singapore. Mm. He followed him on a boat to Singapore, you know. So, um, hey, sorry, no, 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 no. no. My, grand, my great grandfather came to Singapore and oh. then had wives in Singapore. So. Oh, okay. So, so, so nine wives in Singapore. Grand, grandfather, my, my grandfather was born in Singapore. Oh, okay. Yeah, wives. Okay. Not necessarily official. Right, 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 right. So my like great grandfather, apparently, obviously, I never met him, but I heard that he was some tycoon guy. Oh, okay. Some shipping tycoon and all that kind of stuff. So he had obviously access to like nine wives, um, and um, he was he was a filthy rich motherfucker, and my grandfather didn't get a single thing, because he was like the last illegitimate son or whatever. So my grandfather grew up poor, with him and him and his mother. 
you know. Uh, my grandfather grew up poor. He was selling things on the streets and all that. Uh, and uh, eventually, uh, he he begged his way in to get a job as a clerk in Malay, uh, Bank of Malaysia, Malayan Bank. And he worked his way up from bank club to one day finally managing director of Singapore Finance, Hong Leong Finance. Um, so he, he was one of those success stories in that sense, you know, made his way from, uh, from, from nothing. So I look up to him a lot uh, for what he'd done, you know, uh, the sacrifices that he, he'd made along the way uh, in, in, in being a good person. There were a lot of times where he was uh, asked to do um, relatively unethical things. Uh, and we know who ended up doing those unethical things and we know who now in Singapore has an empire because of the unethical things that they've done. Uh, obviously, if he had been the one to, to take up those unethical jobs and all that, uh, I might not even need to work right now. But I'm glad that he stuck to his principles, that he had his integrity, that he did the right thing. And, you know. And he shares about it openly with the family or just you? I heard about this through my dad, you know. So, uh, of course, my, my grandfather is modest with his own accomplishments. But I think everyone knows uh, how, how uh, what a revered man he is. You know, I used to walk down with him down Shenton Way and people would stop and greet him. You know, when I was a kid, I was impressed, like, who's my grandfather, man? You know? Yeah. Um, so, what brings you back to Singapore after that whole, you know, like, I want to cook? Uh, maybe, because firstly, you get paid way more, for sure, in, in Brisbane yeah. or in Australia. Yeah. Why, why, why come back? I was living the white picket fence lifestyle. <laughs> okay. You know, uh, nice, nice house, car, dog, everything. You know, um, and, and, and I just felt like it was too stable. I felt too comfortable. I felt like life shouldn't be this easy. Like, like I, I, I lucked out with, with where I was and this was all a fluke and I don't deserve this and all that. I felt like I needed to throw myself back into some kind of turmoil before I can say that I've actually lived life. So what better way to throw yourself into turmoil than to come back to Singapore and open a restaurant? Right. So all the money that I saved from working at 7-Eleven and all that, I mean, I, it was not, still not enough, but it was a good head start. Uh, I took a loan from my grandfather. Mm -hmm. I took a loan from my grandfather for the, for the balance and all mm -hmm. that. Um, he believed in me, mm -hmm. you know, and he said, he said to me very upfront, he said, oh. Bjorn, I'm going to give you this money. Okay. Right? If you can return it to me, good, because I want you to return it to me. But if you're not going to return it to me, and you fuck up. When I die, I'm gonna give you money anyway. Alright? When, when I die, you gotta get something anyway. And 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 uh why don't you just take this that you know this is your money you're gonna get when I die? Mm -hmm. I'm like, yes. Is he the first person you went to to ask for a loan? Yeah, I was close. I mean he's 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 the person I'm closest to, you know. Uh I spent my childhood living with him. Oh. You know? Uh so you got this money. How much was it when you first started? The first version when of the show? Eventually pulled everything together, it was 250,000. That's a lot. 250,000 is a laughable amount to open a restaurant. Okay. And you ask anyone out, out there how much 250,000 buys you, nothing. Because not only do you have to put money into renovations, equipment, furniture, deposits, legal fees, applications, everything like that, you need money in the bank. 
you cannot just open with zero money in the bank. Mm. You need you you got to lose money for the first few All months. Right, so, so let's need, talk. Let's talk yeah. about that. Um, um, well, I guess maybe for young younger chefs these days, um, what equipment will you not buy secondhand? I would never buy a fridge secondhand. I would never buy a stove secondhand. Never buy a fry. I would never buy secondhand. Let's just put it this way. I'll never buy secondhand unless it was a toaster. Uh, if, if it's anything that's crucial, so you got like one fryer in the whole restaurant, you're not going to buy a secondhand one. Got it. You know? Um, how much financial leeway should one prepare for in terms of time? Yes. Uh, okay. Yeah. No, I, I would lo love to answer you by saying six months worth of uh, fixed, fixed expenses. Uh, so you add your rent together mm -hmm. with your salaries, mm -hmm. things that don't change even in a bad month of sales. <laughs> Multiply true. that by six. Yeah. It gives you six months to turn shit around when shit starts to go bad. Gotcha. You know? So if in the first month you feel like this is not working, mm -hmm. you've got another five months to quickly do something to make it work before you have to close at the end of six months. Did you have that when with uh, 250k? No, I did not. I had about four months. Yeah, four months. I had about four months worth of uh, fixed expenses to, to, to burn through before I was bankrupt and my entire 250000 was gone. Okay. Right? And even with the 250000 I wasn't able to buy brand new stuff. In fact, all my stuff was secondhand. Mm. Exactly what I'm telling you not to do now. <laughs> uh, but I, furnitures I, are okay. Furniture is okay. I was driving the Salvation Army in, in a car that I bought. I didn't even have a car. I borrowed my, I borrowed my grandmother's car. Right? I, paid her, I paid her a few hundred dollars a month. Uh, and I borrowed a car for that whole duration and, and I was driving down in a little small-ass Honda Jazz mm. back and forth to Salvation Army buying $5 chairs for the restaurant. I was buying $1 plates and $5 chairs. I was buying second-hand equipment because I couldn't afford first-hand equipment on that tiny budget. Um, and, and yeah, we put, we put the restaurant together on a shoestring budget. Wow. So you came back with an idea to open the restaurant and now you get some money. So let's now talk about gathering the Avengers. Who yeah, were the first, yeah. first few people you caught? And you know, how was that, you know, gathering the first bunch of people to help? Okay, uh, it was difficult because coming back to Singapore, I had lived away from Singapore for the last seven years. So I didn't have networks. I even, you know, I, I had chef friends in Australia. I did not have chef friends in Singapore. You know, I didn't have anyone to call upon for help, or how do I even recruit my first employee, you know? So it was lucky because obviously I didn't have time to waste. I actually got a part-time job in Singapore while I was looking for a space to rent. Oh. So I was flipping eggs at a cafe, okay. uh, um, you know, uh, on, on weekdays and weekends even, uh, and having to run out to go and view a property or whatever okay. for a good six months. Oh, wow. You know? Um, so I made a few friends there. From there, I made friends from their friends and all that. And, uh, and there was one point when I was in Australia, I came back to Singapore. I interned at uh, this culinary school called Sunrise. Yes, it's still around. Uh, I was uh, the little bitch that helped the instructors set up the Maison Plus for their classes. So I was, I was an intern, lah, you know. So I called my, my, my old uh, you know, friends at Sunrise who were the instructors and all that. And they actually hooked me up with some graduating students. Oh. They hooked me up with uh, their, what you call their, their student affairs officer who helped me find either interns or, or just, you know, right. alumni. Yeah. So I managed to get my first sous chef. Jonathan? No, no. Kel. Kel, okay. Kel. Uh, from, from, from there. From my friend, Mac. His name is McDonald. Okay. He's, a, he's a chef instructor there. 
So Max said, hey, give you the number of this guy's name is Kel. Very good student, graduated already, you know. So Kel came to work for me first. Uh, I put together a motley crew of people. Um, I had another good friend, Brian Chia, who used to run Mossels. He was one of the partners at Mossels. Uh, Brian was my primary school and secondary school friend. Hmm. And it so turns out that we, uh, we both ended up becoming, you know, cooks and chefs. Yeah. Uh, I was working my I was working at uh, this restaurant called Saint Pierre one day, one day, and I felt this massive slap on my back. I turned around, it was Brian. I was like, "What the fuck are you doing here, Brian? You're gonna get me in trouble." He was in the kitchen. Oh my so god! I, ah, fuck you! I know all these guys, and I'm like, "What?" He's Brian. Also, turns out Brian also used to work at Saint Pierre. No way. Okay. Yeah. So Brian came to Saint Pierre for dinner. You know, uh, hung out with all the other guys and 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 saw me there. So I actually got Brian in to help me. First couple of months, Brian, Brian, you know, came in for for a few months to on my opening team. I called more reinforcements. I called my good friend, one of my best buddies from Philippines. His name is JP, JP Anglo. He's he's now a celebrity chef in the Philippines. He's got his own cooking shows and he endorses products and he's like on billboards with like Maggie seasoning, <laughs> that kind of thing. He's 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 a judge for like uh, uh, Master Chef Philippines and all oh, that. Wow. Yeah. So on the second second season he, of his own show, and all. so he came down and he slept on my couch. He came down and he slept on my couch uh, for a few months, and I paid him in Oloa. Okay. We, we we went out for supper every night. And he, I, he didn't even want me to pay him. He said just 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 buy me food every day, you know. And he took his time off. He came down and I'm very lucky to have very good friends. I helped him out also. I did a collab with him at his restaurant in the Philippines before that and all that. So he was grateful. And he came down. and He said, "Bjorn, I'm there. I'm there for you. I'll take I'll take a couple of months off." You know, so he actually really did take a couple of months off and came down to Singapore and helped out. Um, so I put together a crew like that. Uh, Jonathan came from, uh, my, who's my current head chef. Uh, he was a cook at the restaurant that I was part-timing at. The the cafe where you're cooking yeah. eggs. Yeah. And he stupidly came up to me in front of the boss <laughs> when me and the boss were having a chat. Because the boss was my, my secondary school friend. We were just so in between service. We were just having a coffee together. He came up to me and said, Bjorn, you're opening a restaurant, right? When you open, I want to follow you. <laughs> <laughs> the boss was there. I'm like, fuck you. Your boss is right here. And I'm his friend. You're getting me in trouble. He was like, no. I, my, my friend was, was cool about it. I said, yeah, you know, Jonathan, you've been here for a while. Right. And when Bjorn opens, I think you should. Okay. You know, <laughs> join him or something. <laughs> So like you heard him. Huh? It was not my idea. It was his idea. Uh, I did. I did not poach him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, especially with manpower being such a problem here in Singapore. Too, yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like that, just like that, yeah. we got our own monthly crew oh, of that's people. Cool. Um, was there a point, you know, where you think that Adichok, this is not. I'm gonna, not going to make it. You know, this is a stupid idea. Time to close shop. Oh, so many times. So many times. So many times. Uh, oh. Manpower was killing us. There was a point where uh, I, as the head chef, was actually bussing tables. You know, uh, the only staff we had were my manager on the on the floor was my manager and myself, his fourteen year old son at the time, and my fifteen year old stepbrother. We got them in. We we I I call up my brother and say, "What are you doing? I don't care what you're doing. You're coming down and help me. You know, I'm gonna die if you don't help me." He, he, he picked his son. His son was probably doing homework at home. He grabbed his son out of home and he said, you're helping us tonight. Oh my God. It was il- probably illegal to do that or yes. whatever. You know, work a 14-year-old kid. But that's the only thing we could do yep. if we wanted to get by. It was so bad. We, we were almost going to close because we had no staff to operate the restaurant. When, when was that? That was in 2011. 
Okay. The, the, within our first year, wow. towards the end of the first year of our opening. But that was a good problem because then you have a, a lot of, there's a lot of people, there's demand. Now there's not enough supply. I mean, there, we were busy. Okay. We were busy. Mm-hmm. We were busy and people were waiting a long time for the food and people were trying to get our attention and there was no staff. So I don't know what happened to turn things around, but we left it for a while and we, we completely burned ourselves out and finally we managed to get our first quota to hire someone from abroad. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It takes time to build up that quota. At the, at the end of the last leg of first year, it was, it was good business. Um, what were the few bricks you know, that you had that lifted Artichoke off ground zero? Three words. Wong Ah Yop. Who's that? Straits Times Food, right? Uh, food, one, of the, one of the most senior guys oh, in the okay. Straits Times Food uh, writing. You know? Uh, him along with Tan Shui and the two big shots. You know? Uh, Wong Ah Yop came in in our fourth month and gave us a very good glowing review. Um, like, we knew he came in because we recognized him, but we didn't freak out. We just kept our cool and we pretended like we didn't know, he, we didn't know who he was and we just gave him good service and good food and all that. But we yeah. were freaking the fuck out in the kitchen, you know? Uh, so, we, we cooked our asses off. We, uh, we gave him what we thought was a good meal. And the next day, we got a call from uh, his office, from someone in his, from an intern in his office saying that, oh, uh, our boss Wong Ayok ate at your restaurant last night. He liked it. He wants to write about it. Can you give us photos? Or can we send a photographer down? So like, yes. And the following weekend, we, uh, we came up in the papers with a good review, a good, good, good rating, and we were flooded ever since. We were flooded ever since. I think the, the most important thing that he said in, in his uh, review was, wasn't that our food was good. He said our food was unique and different. You know, and I think that's, that was good, good for us. Yeah. Got it. Um, Artichoke, I mean, let's talk about the location of Artichoke right now. It used to be my secret garden, right? Um, how, what was the story behind? Uh, location sucks. <laughs> location was so difficult. You know, I was just talking to Ping. Oh, and yeah. Ping was just telling me, Beyond you got balls, I would never ever open that spot. I'm like, um, I asked him, so now that I've opened up the location, would you come in if I moved out? He said, still wouldn't. Oh. You know, that's how difficult that location is. But I took that location because I, I knew of Secret Garden. I knew of the restaurant that was there before. Uh, I had tried to impress a couple of girls there before to, to, to no oh, success. Me too. Oh, you too? Yeah. yeah, yeah. All, right. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Any success? No. Uh, see? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, and and, and uh, obviously, um, it, it was a spot that I was familiar with. I was always wondering when I was at Secret Garden back in the day, I'm like, Wow, this is such an oasis in the middle of town, you know? I know, right? There, there wasn't places like Dempsey and Rochester and all that up before. There were all these black and white houses, uh, the, the, the trendy kind of places that you have today, they, they weren't opened up back then. Yeah. So this was like the first restaurant that I saw that was not in like a shopping mall or in a shop house or whatever. This was an institution by itself in the middle of the city mm. with two secret entrances and that kind of stuff. So a courtyard, cobblestone courtyard. Yeah. Covered it's by all beautiful. these other buildings. When you're sitting inside, you don't know that you're you're in the middle of town. Yeah. So it was one of those unique locations where the moment I saw, I, I heard that it was available, I wanted it, despite how enclosed it was. Yeah. So the reason why it's bad is because people literally don't know that you exist there. If they, even if no they walk one past. knows. Like even if you walk past, right? Because it's it's flanked by so many buildings, you gotta walk past and look ninety degrees in. 
Yeah. No one walks with their head 90 degrees this way. Mm. You know, you always look forward. And if you walk and you look forward, you would still miss it because the entrance is so narrow. Mm -hmm. You know? So it was it was a tough place for the first four months. Yeah. First of all, we came with zero reputation. Mm. We had no money to pay a PR agency to tell people that we were there. I had to get my manager, Ronnie, to literally stand on the road, right? Smoke his cigarette oh, okay. and hustle people in. As if this was like a strip club in King's Cross or something. You know, he literally had to, had, he had to harass people on the street. Have you had dinner yet? You should have dinner inside. You know, we, we, we were so desperate. We were doing that for the first few months. Yeah. And when people came inside, they thought, wow, nice space and all that. Right? They looked at the menu of Middle Eastern food. Yeah, I don't understand what's this. Uh, what's, uh, is this Indian? Is this what? How come got no pizza? How come got no steak? How come no fish and chips? You know, uh, we 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 chose a very difficult cuisine to do. Mm. We chose a very difficult cuisine to do uh, because I was being I was being an idiot, you know. Um, and and we. But were that's in also a how you got location. the review. And that's exactly how we got the review, saying that we were different and interesting. Mm. Yeah. So eventually, we played the long game, and the long game worked out. Yeah. But it could have easily gone the other way. And if Wang Ayok did not come, I think we would have been closed in two months. Yeah, because he only had four months of leeway, financial leeway. Wow. Yeah. I was very lucky as well that Florence Fong came in our first month. Florence Fong from eight days. Mm -hmm. So she heard about us uh, and she came in our first month and she gave us a good review in the first month. So some people started coming through. But when we went up into the Straits Times, that's where everyone started coming. Now, it wasn't a good thing because a lot of people were upset and we had to answer to a lot of complaints. Because people, when they come, they come with, you know, expectations of... of, yeah. of, of, of uh, preconceived ideas. Well, preconceived that, that you did not give them but they made up themselves. So they come thinking that you're a steakhouse or they come thinking that you've got like, you know, spaghetti meatballs or whatever. And then suddenly you see something like, you know, hummus or baba ganoush. The menu and, the, and and we got so many people that actually asked us, where is your real food? Where's your real food? They actually use the word, where's your real food? And I'm like, excuse me? This is real food. I mean, it's not like virtual food. Yeah. <laughs> but they, they were looking for pizza. They were looking for... 2011, at, right? Because it's still the... There was a guy. I mean, I was the one I, I was the one who said hi to him at the door. I showed him to the table. I gave him the menu. Oh. And he called me back and said, hey, you're the boss here, right? Where's your real food? Wow. You know, I'm like, oh, excuse me, well, oh, what do you mean by where's my real food? Mm. I would suggest this, I would recommend that, you know? And, <laughs> and, and they ended up walking away and saying, can't you make me a steak? You know, I only have what I have in my menu. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, any advice uh, on um, structuring rental agreement? Because like that being one of the, you know, main problem for F&B outlets, people moving out and... I'll tell you how I got the space. Very interesting. So, uh, I heard about the space through a friend. Uh, his uh, dad worked with some people in the you know, NAC and all that. And, and this place is owned by a National Arts Council. So, uh, it's a so-called like government-owned and operated place. And um, because of that, it's not one of those private landlords who, who jack up the rent the moment they see you doing well. Mm. This is government. Mm. You know, they, they, they behave in a much more structured yeah. legitimate way so everything's by the book so it was a good deal to begin with I mean um, we did not know how much rent they were asking for but they were asking us to put in a bid and they were asking us to put in a proposal so they went by proposal now I found out eventually that 
after I put in my proposal, I did my presentation in front of the board of directors and all that, that I was in the final three and I had to come back for another round of proposals and showing them pro you know, projected P&Ls and all that kind of stuff, uh, which I was quite good at because I actually did university. Right. You know, and I, you know, and, and, and I kind of remember that from university. Some people, if they did not do accounting courses and all that, I don't know how they would have been able to. But I, I kind of remember stuff from my accounting courses and all that. So I managed to put together a projected PL, a uh, good spreadsheet presentation and all that. And, you know, uh, what do you call? I managed to impress the board with my concept, not with the rent that I was willing to pay. I found out eventually that the other people, the other three people in, in, in the mix, were established restaurant groups which actually offered higher rent than me. But because this was NAC, because this was a space that gave young artists a chance to shine and all that. This was, this was you know, like a community-driven space. Uh, you know. uh, they decided to give me that chance and I was very, very blessed to, to, to have been chosen. You know, despite the fact that I offered the least rent out of all the three finalists. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I mean, that makes sense now. Um, but on that note of just like structuring rental agreement for other, you know, like young chef. Yeah. Is it, you know, like, are there any, you know, advice you'll give them? Uh, I hate paying GTO, which is percentage of sales, because what it means is that the harder you work, the more rent you pay. So it becomes a bit demoralizing at some point. Yeah. Because if you, what you call, uh, you know, you work so hard and then you give away 20% in rent. What's the point, right? There's no silver lining. Silver lining is when you have a flat rent you work hard, you exceed that rent, you break even, and then everything that you make on top of that, it becomes icing on the cake. Mm. If you pay a percentage in, you know, in a rent, then there's no icing on the cake. Right. So look out for the GTO thing. In the and GTO happens so often these days, especially if you want to oh. go anywhere high traffic in a shopping mall or in a new development or what, you always forced to pay a flat fee plus a GTO. Either that or a GTO with a minimum guarantee. Is there any bargaining chip that you use in terms of negotiating rent then? If you're trying to avoid GTO. If you're, if you're a first-time business owner, you have no bargaining chips. Wow. You have, I, I tell you what is a, a really a shitty thing that happens to people. Um, landlords get them in at a very cheap rate, but they tell them things like, we need you to uh, invest at least half a million in renovation. I won't say the name of this developer, but they say that we need you to invest at least 300000 or 500000 on your renovation if we're going to give you rent at this cheap rate. All right? Uh, what they're doing is they're suckering them in first. Because you always think about it like, oh, okay, you know, I'm spending so much on this, more than I plan to spend on renovations, but the rent is so cheap, I can eventually kind of like offset that against the rent mm. that I'm saving. They make you spend so much. When you spend so much, you don't want to move, right? That's true. Because you sunk it into renovations. When you move, you cannot take your renovation with you. At the end of the first part of, your, of their lease, they increase their rent by two to three times. And these guys are stuck. Will you be able to like put a, a cap on rent increase? In, in I always try. Right, like a 10 I, to 20%. Yes. So with uh, my agreement with NAC was that you can increase my rent every time that we are let our lease ends, you can increase it by 10% max. And they've always agreed to that 10%. Wow. I've had other situations where the landlord is not willing to budge and they want to subject it to market rate. And when they say market rate, it could be two times, it could be three times, it could be four times. Yeah. Imagine your rent goes up from 10,000 to 40,000. So I've, I've heard people's rent go up from 9,000 to 27,000. Overnight. Oh, that's crazy. Three times. How do you do business? How do you survive? 
Yeah, especially when you already invested like renovations and yeah. and if they force you to move out, then you lose all the money that you sunk into your re renovations. Which is why the trick is there. They ask you to sink that much, so that your heart is attached to the place. That when they increase it by two times, you still need to stay there. You know. Um, so this, I'm going to take a left turn here. Um, if you were to strip down artichoke to the bare minimum, you know, what are the few factors that make artichoke tick? What are the few factors that make artichoke tick? Yeah. We are relatively, we were the first in Singapore to be relatively anti-restaurant. You know, I mean, you know what's a dive bar? It's a bar which is a bit deviant, which, where, where people are probably snorting coke in the toilet. People are having sex in the back alley. Right. That kind of shit. You wouldn't see it in Singapore, but yes. You, I no, know. you probably see that. You oh, have, okay. have a few of Maybe. those. Okay. Singapore, <laughs> you know? So we were the first restaurant to do that same kind of thing with the restaurant. Well, mm. Meaning that we did not have anything fine. We did not have anything fine. We played music that was way too loud for, for, for a restaurant at that time. I mean, a lot of people are doing that now. But I think we were the first to, 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 to just piss people off that way. You know, we, we knew who we wanted to be, even at the sacrifice of certain customers. And we stuck by it. We did not offer people things that, that, that they wanted. We offered them what we wanted. Mm -hmm. Like, we've never had truffle fries mm -hmm. on the menu at Artichoke. We never have, never will. It's different with Bird Bird. Bird Bird's a more commercially driven business. So yep. I have things like that. But with Artichoke, which is my flagship, yep. fuck no. You know, no, no truffle fries, no, like if people ask for pizza, fuck it, no pizza. If people ask for pancakes, fuck it, no pancakes. Mm -hmm. Eggs Ben, fuck you, no eggs Ben. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, we do whatever we want to do uh, because we are self-assured, because we're confident, because we're fucking arrogant. You know, I think you need a bit of arrogance. Chefs need arrogance. I, I will put it out there. Chefs need arrogance. Uh, businesses that want to build a brand need arrogance. You, you, you are not doing your job right if you don't piss people off. Because the moment you piss people off, it means that you, you, you're, you're creating some sort of emotion. It means that you're, you're creating some sort of drama. It means that you're, you're, you're getting people's attention. And for everyone that, trust me, for every person that I piss off, there's another two people that like it. Or at least one person that likes it. And I don't need the whole fucking Singapore to come to my restaurant. I just need those people that like it to come. And I love pissing people off. <laughs> I just love people kissing people. Yeah. <laughs> I think uh George who previously was on the interview, interview yeah. also is quite a, Dude, yeah. A, a, yeah, that the same uh same thing, thing with Facebook and like, oh okay. Yeah. So that's what makes Artichoke different, the fact that we were never there to please everyone. We knew that we were not there to please everyone and we never went out there trying to please everyone. Yeah. Do you think that, you know, like if Artichoke were to be open now, like today? Yeah. You know, would it be a fluke or it would be a luck that it, it succeed or because now with so many um, hipster restaurants, which you don't like that name, I know. Mm. Um, no, it's okay. It's, it's all right, but it's all right, but yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. What do you think? You know. No, we would suck today. We were so lucky. I can tell you, Artichoke again is another fluke. Yeah. Mm. We opened at the right time. If we opened three years later, we would not be successful. We were, we opened at the right time because we were the first of our kind to do this kind of thing. So people remember us for that. We already had that what you call pioneer advantage. Mm -hmm. But apart from that, I mean, look, I mean, we, we do good food, but so many people do good food. So you can't say that a restaurant succeeds because they do good food. A restaurant succeeds because they do good food and they have something interesting going on. 
And we were the first to claim that aspect of being interesting. Uh, we were also, along with some other restaurants like Disgruntled Chef and Kokot, the first in Singapore, to do non-Asian cuisine, which was in a communal format. Everyone else was doing, you know, individual main courses and appetizers before that. But Disgruntled Chef came along first, followed by Kokot, followed by Artichoke, and we all shared this same thing. And we were all looking at each other because we knew that we were doing the same thing, which was communal style, non-Asian food. Mm. Yeah. Um, since we are on the topic of, you know, like being anti fine dining, anti-restaurants, uh, what experience have shaped your decision or solidified your stance in, you know, taking that, uh, you know, saying like, oh, I'm not chasing the stars anymore. This is not me. No, I mean, it's, it's, been, it's been like that ever since day one, you know. It's been like that ever since day one. When we heard that Michelin stars were coming to Singapore, the first thing that I did was go into my kitchen and, 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 and pull everyone around and ask them, all right, so how many of you guys want stars? And everyone's like, yeah, like, fuck you all. <laughs> we're not, you know, like, fuck you all. We're not going to change what we're doing, all right? And they're like, oh, and they're like, <laughs> you know. But why, why then? You know, why, why the whole? Because, I mean, look, I mean, we were successful before Michelin stars came to Singapore. There's a reason why people like us. And I don't want to change that just because the star, you know, the star system comes to Singapore. And I mean, I, I agree that, you know, Michelin stars are good. I, I, I'm really happy for my friends who got them. But that's not me, that's not us. That's not what's made us, that's not, that is not what has brought us to where we are. So if we start changing that, then we are changing ourselves. And why? You know? Mm. So the first thing I said to the guys was, look, don't even try. Don't even try. We will not, I told them, we will not get a start. There's no way we're going to get a start because we're not the kind of place. We're, 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 no matter what they say about food quality being the only thing, trust me, that's not the case. They still, people start, inspectors still look for things like comfort level and, 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 and general level of service and attention. Oh, but it's still some like hawker, hawkers. That's stock. fucking, that's lip service. Like, right, right. Bull, bull, <laughs> right uh, sorry, it's bullshit. It's lip service. Yeah. Uh, okay, that's let's, like, that's like, that's a token award. <laughs> Or yeah. maybe it could be marketing. It's, it's complete. It's marketing stunt. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, moving on to hiring, I think you, you, you pull up importance in, in terms of placing people who, are, who work around you. You know, like, what inspires you to take up the stance? What inspired me to take up the stance? Yeah, of just putting importance in, in, in people, in, in, in your staff, in your chef. Well, I think, you know, um, okay. A lot of people open restaurants and have never worked in restaurants, mm -hmm. right? Uh, I'm glad that I opened a restaurant but had worked in restaurants before. So I understand how these guys feel. I understand what it's like to be taking out trash at the end of the night, at, at midnight, you know? I understand what it's like towards the end of the month when you have a bit less money and you're waiting for your paycheck and all that kind of stuff. So I understand what it's like to pick up a piece of paper on a table that's got like snot with your bare hands. You know, uh, done all that before. So I know the importance of, of, of that kind of leadership from the front. I've also worked in places where there's no respect for the owner because the owner just tells the staff to do things that the owner, he himself or her herself, is not willing to do or has never done before. So I felt like I needed to be a hands-on boss. And I was very, very hands-on for the first four years at Artichoke while I was the active head chef. Uh, I would be there the same hours as everyone else. It was 
11 months before I took a day off. 11 months. My first night off was for the wedding of Yuan Ui from Puivier Group. It was my first night off ever after 11 months of opening the business. Before that, I got sick. Everything I was at work every day, you know. And even when I was on my night off, I was calling back every hour to find out how things were going. So it's important that you make your staff know that you're on board with them. Uh, it's important that you reward them well and motivate them and incentivize them because it's hard to find staff in the industry in, in this day and age. And it's easier to keep staff than to find new staff. So we have a lot of career development programs. I mean, my wife works with me on, on, on career development for them, career pathing and all that. Uh, it's very important that they know where they're going, what they can look forward to, where we as a company are going. I'm going to dive in a little bit into hiring here. Um, has your, how, 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 have you, how have you attracted uh, a talents? We have never advertised in the papers. We've never advertised on a job portal online. Because we believe that the best people to want to work for us are the ones that know who, where they want to work and approach us straight. So even in times when we are short-staffed, we never advertise on these places. We just wait for people to come to us. Word of, Word of mouth is important. We blast on our own social media platforms just to let people know that we are hiring. And we let people take it from there. I don't want to hire anyone who's never heard of us. I don't want to hire anyone who's never eaten at our restaurant. I don't want to hire anyone that hasn't checked out our website first. You know, and that's the kind of people that you might get if you blast it on 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 the classifieds. You know, not that I'm not saying they're not good, but I feel like we are a very tight team. We need people who are, are as interested as us. So it's good when people come through and. Are you still doing it now? We still do it. You know, we have we have a wait list. Oh, who's there? We have a wait list for people. And people actually wait on the wait list. And, uh, and people actually, uh, what do you call, at the end of, uh, at, at the end of uh, maybe two years on the wait list, they finally get a job. Of course, they're not waiting for the whole two years. We tell them, look, you know, <laughs> right. we don't have a space for you right now, but if you don't mind, can we put you on a wait list? Yeah. And I'm, I'd like to you know, recommend you work somewhere else first. Mm -hmm. And they go work somewhere else. At the moment, a spot frees up. They tell us, you know, please call us. And we call them and straight away, they're like, okay, I'm in. Mm. You know? Um... How's your hiring processing processes look like? Is it just based on you know, just come do two weeks stash or we never hire anyone without them doing a stash first. So we've got someone coming for a stash this Friday. This Friday at Arichok, I believe. And we got someone doing a stash at Bird Bird on Wednesday, it's just tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, we need them to know that they're making the right choices, not just a one-way street. We need them to know that they're gonna love the job. Because we don't want someone coming in and then changing their mind one week later or even three months later. So this person needs to, to know what they're getting into. This person needs to uh, know the people that they're going to work with. So some work for an entire weekend. Some work just for one day. They're, actually, they don't really work. They come in and observe. I call it an observation day. So we don't judge them on their observation day. If they want to get their hands dirty, which a lot of them do because they want to impress, then they can. But if some of them just want to hang back and watch they're most welcome to hang back and watch. And we don't judge them for and that. And this is one day? And it can be just one day. Okay. Yeah, it can be just one day. And then you, what's the usual period that you put them? Two weeks? No, week? just one day. Just one day. You just watch for one day and then you sleep on it. And I say, look, you don't tell me now. Tell me tomorrow. Right. Sleep on it tonight. Call me tomorrow if you still want the job. And if I'm not wrong also, like you guys are the first F&B outfit to bring your stuff on overseas trip. I don't know about that. I mean, we, we did that since 2011 now. 
one of us. Oh, I don't few. know if anyone else does it <laughs> personally. I don't know. Yeah. Um. Where did you get the idea from? Like, or how? Because it's, 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 it's well, firstly, you're spending a lot of money, and then the restaurant's closed, so you're not making money. It's a huge opportunity. You know cost. how much it costs? It, a lot. <laughs> you know how much it fucking would you, costs? Would you like to tell me? Out of pocket, just for the trip. Okay, yeah. like, let's talk about where we went earlier this year. We went to Melbourne mm-hmm. earlier this year with 22 staff. Yeah. We went to Japan last year with 21 staff. Both times, my budget for the actual trip itself was very tight already. We were compressing our budget. Oh. We were you know, finding you know, three-star hotels to stay okay. at rather than four-star and five-star hotels. Right, right. We were, as best as we can, always trying to fly, fly a budget airline or whatever. Yeah, Tuesday or Thursdays. Or uh, flying on a Monday, yeah. uh, sun, Sunday night or whatever. We, we would spend about 40000 that's my budget, 40000 while we are there in flights, accommodation, spending money, right? And, and whatever activities we want to do, group activities and all that. The closure of the restaurant, <laughs> I can't tell you how much because then you can figure out how much I make at the restaurant, but the closure of the restaurant brings that whole figure to a six-figure sum. Because of the opportunity loss. Yes. We're still paying staffing. We're still paying rent. But we're not operating for one entire week of the month. Yeah. And uh, there was one time we took them away for 10 days. Japan. 10 days. We were closed for 10 days. Oh my God. You know? So that's like one third of the month. Yeah. So we make a massive loss. We make a massive on paper loss that month. Which takes the next few months to make back. When was the first trip? Since I had a show, like two years in or one? Okay, the first trip was not everyone involved, unfortunately. The first trip was just me and Kel, Mm. my sous chef at the time. Yeah. And that was to Melbourne. That was in 2011. So first year? We opened 2010. Also second year. But we did it in like the middle of 2011. So kind of towards the tail end of the first year. Right. When we started to get busy, when we realized that we really needed to to understand ourselves and, 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 and give ourselves a good solid branding and personality mm. Mm. and then the following year we started getting everyone involved because we needed to renovate the restaurant okay. so we said oh. ah fuck it let's go get everyone on board and let's go to Bangkok so we went to Bangkok right right and after that we went to Sydney then we went to Vietnam then we went to Jap- Japan then Melbourne and then next year we're still thinking where we're going to go right you know we pay for everything airfare accommodation so wh- why, spending why, money why, why then the, you know, the insistence to, to do that for your staff okay several reasons First reason, uh, talk about the most practical one, is that, you know how in Singapore, service charge is not never distributed to staff? In most cases, I'd say that maybe only about 5% of restaurants or less distribute service charge. I believe that it should be distributed either in cash or, or in some other way that, that benefits the staff. Staff engagement activity, staff development and all that kind of stuff. That's how we spend it. That's how we spend our service charge. Uh, I also feel like if I give them money, right, they would spend it on soccer betting, they'd spend it on cigarettes, they would spend it on, 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 on other vices and all that kind of stuff, which is not going to benefit them or their careers. So we give it to them in a mix of good bonuses as well as personal career development opportunities. Um, that's how we do it. Uh, second of all, if you are working in the service industry as a service provider, how can you be a good service provider if you are not a seasoned consumer yourself? How do you know what kind of service your customers expect when you yourself are not a customer very often? And when we work in Singapore, we're not the customers very often because we get, what, Mondays off, right? And when you get a Monday off, you, most of the time you're sleeping at home. Well, and the rest of the restaurants are not open too. 
Or if you eat out, you're eating out, or you're eating at home with your family or whatever. The first time in a week you're eating with your family, you know. So if I just let them be on their own, they're not going to develop themselves that way. So we found that we needed to, to what you call, orchestrate that development. So we needed to bring them overseas. We needed to bring them out of our own restaurant and give them that exposure. We needed to bring them to other places, not to copy things, but to benchmark, to see where we stood versus other places, to see what other places were doing that we weren't doing, that, that, that we could look at possibly trying to, to do at that same level, to, to keep ourselves competitive and keep ourselves good for our customers. You know, benchmarking is very important. How do you know whether or not you're doing a great job or, or a shit job unless you eat out at other people's places? So uh, let's just dive into one of the trips to Japan, right? 10 yeah. days. Because yeah. I, I am also going to Japan next month. It's my first time visiting. Yeah. What, what do you guys do uh, of the 10 days? Just eating all the time? Yeah, we went out. We, everyone got pocket money. Everyone gets enough money to eat at restaurants, right. you know? Uh, and everyone just went out and, and looked at ingredients, got inspiration. We get inspiration, even though we're a Middle Eastern restaurant, we get inspiration from things that are not, not, not even Middle Eastern, you know? Because we're not an authentic Middle Eastern restaurant. So everyone just went out and, and we were in Kyoto, and of course they had, you know, JR passes where they could go to Osaka and Kobe. So do you guys go together? Or no, we can't, we can't go together because... Oh, so just, you just like put them at the, at the place and give them Pokemon. Here, here are some interesting places. Yeah, and, and of course they can, they can group up and go... Right. together if they want to or they can go themselves or oh, what so that's very interesting it's free and easy okay but they must share with me beforehand where they plan to go ah. and they must show me pictures of where they go okay. <laughs> and we must sit down after that and discuss where they went right. and what they learned ah. when we went to Melbourne earlier this year right. we gave them all report cards to fill up okay which they had to fill up at night when they got back to the, to the apartment oh you know uh, so they and, and, in, and in Melbourne I made it even more structured they had to suggest to me their itineraries even before they went so that I know how much pocket money to give them. Right. So, like all the, all the front of house guys decided to go to cafes. Uh -huh. They hit up the cafe scene there, look at the beverages that people were doing, look at the coffees that people were doing, look at the way that people were managing queue systems and managing questions and all that kind of, you know, uh, tough questions from customers and all that. So they decided to hit up all these very large, busy, crowded cafes. And all the chefs from the kitchen decided to hit up with the more fancy restaurants and a few cafes, okay. you know, and some kebab joints, okay. you know. So they would propose to me beforehand where they're going to go. And sometimes the front of house guys mix it up with the back of house guys. So two guys from the kitchen, two guys from the front of house would go out together to one place. And the next day, they would split up again and all the kitchen guys would go to another place. The front of house guys would go to another place, that kind of thing. So they, everyone has an itinerary for me for every single day, every single meal of the day. And I would okay the thing. And I would set the budget for that person for that day and for the whole trip. I can see why Roxanne is so busy now. Oh, it was, it was tough calculating this. So not everyone got the same amount of money. Yeah, yeah. But that's also because not everyone went to the same places. Mm. Yeah. Has it always been like that? or This was the first time we did it this way because we didn't want people to feel constrained by the money. If someone went to a restaurant, I don't want them to feel like they have to only like five people share five dishes. I want them five people to be able to eat nine dishes and have two cocktails each just so that they can experience more, you know? But if I give everyone a flat figure, then, you no. Know. we also found that sometimes in previous trips, people were saving their money. Oh. Yeah. Like in Japan, uh -huh. they weren't really going out, they were eating fast food instead. <laughs> they were taking their money going so home. So now you give them a And then card. buying fucking 40 <laughs> with, 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 and losing the, the amount. So, like, fuck you, you know? Uh, 
You gonna tell me, me where you're gonna go? Instagram picture. <laughs> right, discuss with me. Come back, discuss. Every morning we'd meet up in my apartment right. in Melbourne, and and we'd discuss where everyone went the night before and all that, before no. we set off for the day. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's awesome. Yeah. So that's just just one aspect of mm-hmm. staff develop, right. development. The other one is we send our staff overseas on their own. My head chef Jonathan, I sent him to Copenhagen for uh, he went to Copenhagen for four months. Oh, I covered his salary for the whole time. Was it for the event? What's that uh, food event? I, we did a we, we we did a food event there. That we did a Copenhagen cooking festival. Uh, that's where we started to build networks and contacts over there. We uh, collaborated with the Klaus Meyer group. Uh, he made a few friends there and he got some emails and all that. So eventually, he went back a second time, and I supported him on this one. I, you know, I said, look, I'm going to pay your salary while you're there, and he actually went and staged. Uh, at, at, at a restaurant called Studio, which is under the Klaus Meyer Group, uh, for the, for that duration, you know, and I got his back over here. So we pay for things like that. Uh, my sous chef Frankie just came back from Philippines. I sent him there. I hooked him up with my my chef friend JP, who's got several restaurants now, you know, and he so he basically followed JP everywhere and he cooked at JP's restaurants. He followed JP to do like you know demos for the public and all that and all these press events and all that and he spent another week traveling around philippines with jp and jp's cousin after that all paid for by me you know uh just so that he can expose himself to to more food experiences and then when he came back we just did a filipino event oh, on sunday night nice where he he did a pop-up at, at artichoke and he just cooked whatever he was inspired by from his last trip so it's personal development like that hmm no, and also you invest a lot of, of, of time and money to, to, for, for them to grow. It makes me almost unprofitable. <laughs> um, well, do they enjoy it? I, I, of course they enjoy it. Of yeah. course they enjoy it. No, and they work hard so they deserve it. You know? How do you view the life cycle of a chef? So life cycle meaning like, you know, are you talking about how, how will, will we... Uh, still be relevant in a few years or... Yeah. Okay. And also plus like personal development and to make things interesting to keep... not to let you not be jaded. Burnout burnout is part of it. You got to expect burnout a few times a year. I burn out at least two times a year. Uh, One of the things that you have to invest in yourself when you burn out is is you need to be able to take time off and get away. I, I need at least one solo trip every year. To, uh, to untangle the knots in my head. Uh, I just managed to, to do that with my Japan trip a couple of months back. Uh, immediately after my filming in Hong Kong, uh, I managed to get about five days to myself in Japan after that. It's not long enough, to be honest. But it helps you... When, when you start to get away and, and break away from, from your daily thing, that's when you start to really zen out and, and, and things, it gives you time to reflect and contemplate. I know it sounds really like fucking PhD, PhD shit right now. But no, it's true, you know, when, when, you, when you burn out and you will as a chef, you, you really need that, that mind off time. If not, you'll go crazy. If not, you'll leave the industry. Yeah. You will. So expect burnout. Expect to have to get away. Expect to have to spend money to get away. You know? Or you can do it in Singapore, but the problem is we got your like, you know, phone and phone and people calling you yeah. and suppliers calling you all the time. You're never really gonna get away. Yeah, yeah. So that that's important. Uh, if not, your life cycle is very short. 
a lot of people I know start leaving the industry the moment they get married. And that's tough because we lose a lot of good people. We lose a lot of good people. How do you even get in a relationship, you know, working six days a week? Because that's also... Your, your, your partner can understand before you're married, but after you're married, it's tough. And it's, you know, I've seen a lot of marriages break down even because of this. So it's, it's an industry I, I, I understand why my parents were not happy about me getting into. I understand, you know, it's, it's, it's rough. It's rough, yeah. So how should, like, you know, one you know, plan for their, say, like 10 years, uh, <laughs> other than taking trips every year, uh, you know, to, to recover? Refresh your mind. Refresh your mind. You know, work for a good employer. Don't work for someone who's exploiting you. Don't work for someone who, who just wants you to, uh, you know, uh, don't work for someone who, who, who doesn't have career plans for you or who doesn't care about your future. You can work for them, but move on after a couple mm. of years. Take whatever you can from them, move on after a couple of years. If you're going to commit to someone, then commit to someone who, who, who has plans for you and who, who's genuine. Now, a lot of those plans, I feel bad because some of my plans that I had for my guys couldn't work out. Because mm. there's always this thing called finances. Yeah. If finances are not good, you can't do things for people that you want to do for them, no matter how bad you want to do it for them. You know? But at least work for someone who's got the genuine intentions. Mm -hmm. You know? Uh, work for someone who's willing to give you uh, exposure and, and, and time and opportunity to uh, ex expand, expand your own horizons. So, um, this question is mainly from me because uh, I see yeah. that in Singapore, we have this sort of addiction to growth. Uh, we always want to climb the ladder, be it wherever you are. Yeah, yeah. Um, is, it, is it true though for, yeah, for, for a chef that we always, we shout, is it how should he or she view his yeah. career as, you know, like, oh, let's, you know, after five years, I need to be head chef or... Uh, Where did you hear this from? Because it's really true. Yeah, no. <laughs> Someone else said <laughs> no, this? I, no, I have many chef friends. Uh, yeah. Yeah, well, there. <laughs> you know, it, it's tough because, you see, back in the day, if you talk about, let's say, 20 years ago, mm. if you were a chef, right? Yeah. You would work for 10 years before, be, be, before getting promoted or, you know, it's, it's hard in the old days. Um, in the days of like hotel kitchens and all that, you could be working in the same hotel and not hit a management rank for the first 15 years, you know. But no one has 15 years to spend right now. No one has 15 years to wait, you know. Everyone learns things on YouTube nowadays. You don't have to like work your ass off and, and carry someone's balls for 15 years just for them to teach you their secrets anymore. You can buy books, you can watch TV, you can watch YouTube. Mm -hmm. You know, the, this, is, this is the knowledge economy. You know, this is the this is the generation of, of knowledge. You don't have to wait so long anymore. You don't have to, as a sushi chef, I mean, there's a sushi school now that can teach you how to do stuff in two months. Yeah. You don't have to like wash rice for like five years. All right, like zero. <laughs> yeah, before you like, can touch the fish. Just you know? the, the, the seaweed, do it for one year before you can move on yeah. to rice. And you don't have to put up with the old school uh, French brigade style of, you know, cooking where you get pots and pans thrown at you and you get stabbed and all that when you do something wrong enough, mm -hmm. you know seen that myself and gone through that myself you know you don't young people don't put up with this shit anymore and they don't wait anymore so that's tough that's very tough because opportunities don't come like that I mean it's, it's very difficult it's very difficult balancing the stability that a business owner needs versus the aspirations of young people which is why a lot of young people have left you know uh, but the way I have to do it as a boss is that if they leave I have to make sure that they go to another place that's good as well 
You know, I, I might not be able to give them all these opportunities. I tell them already, look, I mean, how many restaurants can I love to... I'd love to open a restaurant. If I had all the money in the world, I'd love to have <laughs> you, 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 you all have your own restaurants. Yeah. I would fund it. Yeah. But unfortunately, I don't. Mm. You know? I still drive a fucking delivery van. <laughs> you know? I don't. I don't myself, you know? So, unfortunately, some of you might have to move on from me before you get your own big break. Uh, your big break may or, or most likely may not come from me. You know? But use me as your as a stepping stone. Mm. I'll be honest about it. Use me as a stepping stone. And if you do well with me, I will make sure that your next job is is good as well. You know? So, or, um you know when you when you when you come when you first started cooking, uh, when you first started wanting to open a restaurant, it's always the whole you know, the love for being in the kitchen. And I think being a, a business owner, sometimes you don't have the luxury to to do that. No, you don't. Um, that's the biggest fallacy that's the biggest lie the biggest <laughs> lie is that if you open your own restaurant you can be surrounded by food and cook every day yeah well, how, how, how do you you know what, what is that uh, inner self-talk that you you, you you tell yourself that you know wow, I'm not in the kitchen now why the hell am I doing this <laughs> yeah I mean I, I started to realize the moment that I opened Artichoke and, and I realized that there was so much paperwork that I could not be in the you know that I could not be in the kitchen in the afternoon I wanted to be part of prep but every three minutes when I was doing something, my phone would ring or someone would come in looking for me. And in the end, I became very ineffective and unproductive because the same task, if I was cutting a vegetable, would be stretched out across three hours when someone else in my team could have done it in 20 minutes. You know, because I, I was being pulled in multiple directions. You know, I couldn't even go to the fucking toilet. You know, I cannot go, I cannot walk to the toilet without being stopped by three people. That's how bad it was. That's why you burn out. That's why you just fucking... I, you know how many phones I broke? How many phones I threw onto the roof or, or smashed on the floor or whatever? You know, when you're peeing, uh -huh. your phone is vibrating in your pocket. You're standing there peeing and it's going... <laughs> you just want to take out your phone and, 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 and throw it in the urinal and piss on it, you know? And there's always a, a fire to, to put out. Someone's unhappy, someone wants to leave, someone wants to quit, someone wants to kill someone else, you know? The, the people part is so fucking difficult, I tell you. Just, you know, like, getting them to love you is not difficult, but getting them to love each other is fucking hard. Especially when two people leave, right? Now, I've had this before. Two people, fucking good people. I love them, they love me, We've, you know. But they fucking hate each other. And they both leave. Oh, no. At the same time, they both throw in the towel at the same time because they can't get along with each other. I'm like, what the fuck? Right. You know? So I mean, it's the same thing with the, it's, it's the flip side of the arrogance. What's the flip side of the arrogance? Then, you know, people might not get along. Yeah. No, managing people is the hardest aspect of this job that you will not be prepared for. You can never prepare yourself for. You just have to fucking deal with. And... Well, I, is there anything, any valuable lessons for someone uh, about people management? I don't even know if I, 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 <laughs> I don't think I've mastered it. Okay. I'm far from understanding it in full. If you were to go back to tell your, you know, your younger version when you first started uh, some <laughs> lessons? <laughs> no, you, you, you will lose people. You will lose people. No matter how you try. And that's the first thing I tell my, you know, Jonathan took up his first head chef job with me at Artichoke. I told him on day one, or you know, not even on day one, before, while I was preparing him for his job. 
I said to him straight in the face, John, during your time, I said, Chef, you will lose people. People will hate you. People will quit. The reason being is you. But it's okay. It's okay. Because I understand that. So don't be demoralized if your presence makes someone else fuck off. And it's the same thing. And true enough, the moment he assumed this role, I announced that he was going to be a head chef, one guy quit. You know? And another one threatened to quit. Oh. So, it's tough. It's tough. You can't, you can't please everyone. Mm. You can't please everyone. Um, so going back a little bit on the, you know, the whole addiction to growth, you know, I think it might be a Singapore thing, I don't know. Um, how should, how would you like the younger generation's chef stepping into the industry be looking at this? Okay. Now, this is the, uh, I, I'm very protective of what people call the strawberry generation, okay? Because I don't, I don't think they're all whiny, I don't think they're all irresponsible. But I think that maybe they've grown up in a very unfortunate time when, 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 when uh, things come a bit too easy. So it's not their fault. But they kind of expect it to be that way. Okay? So a lot of young chefs that come to me leave after two months saying, oh, I learned everything already. I know everything. I learned all your recipes already. I'm moving on. You know? Or, or a lot of them have come through. The ones that don't stay leave very fast and, and, and the reason being uh, oh I stopped learning already you know my reply to them is look when you're in school which you just graduated from when you're in school you pay to learn so it's okay for you to expect an education it's okay for you to expect to go into class every day at 8am and expect to do something new every day and be taught something new because you are fucking paying school fees but when you're in the industry and you're working how can you expect to be paid and yet for your boss to every day, oh, here's something new for you to do. Or here's a new ingredient for you to work with. Right? Here, here is a new experience for you. Oh, I'm sending you to Copenhagen tomorrow. Now, how do you expect to be paid and get all of that? You know? But a lot of them think that way. They think that the moment I stop learning in one place, I move on. So they job hop every six months. And it looks like shit on the resume. It looks like shit. I've seen people... Like, like, I got a lot of resumes in recently because we were going on a recruitment drive for Birdman. Yeah. And I've got this guy who's like spent three months in every place that he's worked at and we're not even going to call him for an interview because he spent three months everywhere. And he's probably got the same mentality that, look, I want to go to a job where my superiors will teach me something different every day. And the moment I stop learning, I'm going to stop working. Well, fuck you, okay? Then if you want me to do that, then you pay me to work here. Lah. Why should I be paying you? You, pay, you work in an organization. You take a salary. You contribute. You don't expect an education to be handed to you on a silver platter. You want to learn, can. You want to learn from your colleagues. You come earlier to work, you stay later. You ask me questions. You know, you learn in your own ways. But you don't expect to be fucking hand-fed an education. Yeah. yeah. So that's my response to you when you ask about people being in a rush for growth, people being in a rush for development, people wanting to be head chef after two years. That's my answer to you. You can't. You know? If you want to do that, okay lah. You probably end up in a, in, a, in a little cafe or a restaurant that's not going to work out anyway. You know? You want to work in a good place for good people? So Expect for, the process for, to be a bit longer. Who, who have been it for a long run, uh, how, what are some views or perspective of how they see their job? 
to be. I mean, more than just, you know, well, you just, you're still running a business, yeah. you still need to make money, um, and take, taking breaks. Yeah. And well, what, what, what made them stay, you know, like throughout this thick and thin? Okay. I mean, you think about it, I'm 34 this year. Yeah. Coming 35. Still young. I'm already, uh, I, I'm already, uh, I've already been the head chef of my restaurant. Already looking at two, looking after two restaurants and a and an ice cream brand right now. Do all these things on the side. I mean, what more is there to life? What more can I do? And I got so many more years before I have to retire. Yeah. So what do I do? What do you do? Exactly. What do I do? So you got to start twisting your own priority. You got to start getting around this yourself in your own head. Mm. I've decided that what I'm gonna do is gonna. I'm going to invest in people. I'm going to. Uh, let me gather my thought here. I'm okay. going to. I, I I don't say invest in meaning financially. I can't. You know, I still got a large mortgage to pay off and all that. You know, home loan and all that. But I'm going to try and develop people. I want to give back, lah. And if you think about it that way, then there's no end point to that. Mm. There's no end to being able to develop people. There's no end being able to make a difference, touch someone's life, turn them in from girl into woman or boy into man. You know, time to mentor someone. Uh, you know, you know how you know chef mentors. Always, you know, people like Daniel Balu always get spoken up by people who've ever worked for them, their proteges and all that. They were that generation of chefs who gave birth to so many great chefs today. It's never a boring job when you when when you think about your job that way. Mm. I want to do that too. I want to do that too. That's the only thing I can. That's that's the only thing I got right now. It's the only thing I can do now. You know. <laughs> um, wow. Uh, what scares you the most about being a restaurant owner? Every day, everything, everyone. What scares me the most is that everything can be stable today, but everything can come come apart tomorrow. That's how volatile it is. Everything can fall apart tomorrow. You know? Um, everything was stable. My wife's supposed to give birth in February. Jonathan, my head chef of Artichoke, has just told me that he's leaving. Oh, well, he's just got married. He just got married. But he's leaving because he's got an opportunity somewhere else. Because I wasn't able to grow fast enough to give him that opportunity. I feel bad for that. He told me in a very good way. He gave me more than advance notice. It's still very heartbreaking. It's still very difficult. I still love him. He still loves me, I know. We're leaving. He's leaving on good terms. But the stability that I thought I had yesterday, it's not there anymore. And I thought that then the first year of me being a dad, I could be able to maybe have a little bit more time at home. Yeah. Now it doesn't feel that way. Now it doesn't feel that way at all. Yeah. So I've been thrown into this turmoil. Um, a lot of people when asked about, you know, when to, to interview you, they, they, they bring out a topic of uh, investing. Uh, not not uh, basically finding investors and go about finding funds. Um, what are some pros and cons of using your money versus investors' money? I don't know. I've never used investors' money before. Everything that I've opened after Artichoke came from organic growth of Artichoke. And I can tell you that I have net effect, meaning that I have lost everything that I've earned. My good friend Yuan from Privé, like I was saying, went to his wedding. 
before I opened Artichoke, he was already an established restaurateur in Singapore. He had about eight restaurants at the time. So I, I very jokingly asked him one afternoon, say, hey, Yuan, so how rich are you now? How many boats do you have? He's like, fuck you, I have no boats. Still live with my, you know, I, uh, he's like, I, I, I live with my, I, I live with my in-laws. See, how many mansions do you fucking have? And I didn't believe it when he told me that he lived with his in-laws and that he didn't have any of those things. Now I understand. Now I understand. Because you know that I, every cent that I've made at Artichoke in the last three years has been lost. Oh, is lost or reinvested? Reinvested and lost. In, everything that Artichoke made in year one and two went to this place called Overdose, which was a bakery that I once had. Yes. And it was lost in three months. Three months? Three months. Everything that I had, that everything that I made in year three, four, and five of Artichoke went into my restaurant, Bird Bird. And so far, it's been losing. Basically, I've made nothing. Right. From all my last six years at Artichoke, apart from my own salary, mm. and apart from other, other consulting gigs that I do outside, mm -hmm. and teaching and all that kind of mm -hmm. stuff, that's where my money comes from, not from the restaurant. Mm. Because as fast as you can make it, you can also lose it very, very, even faster. How, how, well, I'm astounded to hear that in three months you lose. How, how did that happen? Why, you know, I mean, with, with, you know, at least with some knowledge of operating a restaurant, you would think you wouldn't fall into that trap. Exactly. How did that happen? So I opened that Waterloo Centre, mm -hmm. right across the road from Artichoke, because I wanted a place where I could bake bread and send the bread down to Artichoke, fresh every day. Within 10 minutes. Hmm. So I was looking for a space near Artichoke. So I found a ground floor unit at Waterloo Centre. That was a really nice unit. It was a tuition centre. But the facing was a big open field. Big open field. And it was just across the corridor from a big open field. So there's a little walkway. Maybe about one and a half metres wide. And it was just this big field. Yeah. Across. So I spent money on renovations. I told you before that renovations cannot be taken back, right? Ah. Okay, so I spent money converting the place from a tuition center into a bakery with a massive open window that looked out to this field. I built a nice bench on that window so people could sit on the windowsill. The windowsill was basically a bench and drink their coffee and eat their, eat their, their Middle Eastern pastries and all that kind of stuff and look out to this field. Yeah. In the back of my head, I was always wondering what's going to happen to this field. So I spoke with the landlord. Say, oh, nothing's gonna happen. Don't worry, nothing. You know, it's been it's been like that for years. It belongs to the government. Two months after we spent about two hundred thousand dollars doing all of that, that field became a construction site. It was one point five meters from our front door, and that one point five meters from the front door was also scaffolded all the way up five stories. So no one want to walk by. First of all, there was piling. There was drilling. The big open view that we had now became a white board because of this scaffolding. Right. They boarded the whole place up. I thought, okay, how long can this go on for? Let's ride it out. I found out that it was going to go on for one whole year. One full year. Our business, which was good in the first month, went to virtually zero in the second month. Sorry, the first, our business, which was good in the first two months, went to virtually zero in the third month. Virtually zero. That was a corridor between the open field and the, and, and the shop house units. People would use that pathway to cross between Queen Street and Waterloo Street. So it was a thoroughfare. 
our publicity came from people walking through. They cut off one end. <laughs> they cut off one end totally. So there was a dead end. It from became, the one who walked there. It be, from, a, from a passageway, it became a dead end alley. So no one walked in anymore. People walked around the whole thing. And this big view that we spent so much money and so much time building and all the months of rent that we paid while we were renovating to open up this thing and all the applications that we made to HDB to knock down this wall to make this big window oh. went out the drink. And we found out that our landlord knew about this early. Oh. Didn't tell us. In fact, told us the opposite. Oh. And when we came into our landlord and said, hey, can you give us some kind of concession? Right. Because see, he threw the book at us and said, no, sorry, you signed the lease. Oh. But the fourth month, we lost so much. We, okay, you know, when you pay salaries and pay rent and you have zero sales? Yeah. That's fucked. <laughs> yeah. By the fourth month, we were so fucked, we had to close to cut our loss. Wow. And, and then not even, like, you know... Didn't give a shit. Wow. Didn't give a shit. And by that time, we sunk all that money into renovations and we suffered bleeding for two months. So meaning that our rent, our entire staff salaries and all our utilities were just not even being covered. And plus, needed needing to pay that landlord. Pay the rent. And then, plus having to break the lease. We had to pay a penalty yeah. to break the lease. Oh. And find a new tenant. Yeah. And move out. Yeah. All that cost money. All that cost almost $230,000. That's how, what I mean by every cent that I made at Artichoke was lost in, in three to four months. Uh, yeah. So, speaking, speaking on challenges... Um, if you would compare, you know, um, Singapore and Brisbane since you were there, yep. you know, um, what are some challenges that you know, we face here in Singapore, the F&B scene, yep. that is non-existence in Brisbane? I don't know. I've never run business in Brisbane before. Okay. I've never run a business in Australia. I've heard, you know, I've, I've heard about certain challenges and difficulties. I've, uh, I mean, look, if I was being paid... $35 an hour at 7-Eleven, I imagine salary just there are very high and as a business owner, being on the other side of it. So the, maybe the question, a better question would be, yeah. would, would it be easier to open a restaurant in Brisbane than in Singapore? I don't know. I don't think it's easy anywhere. Okay. To be honest with you, I don't think it's easy anywhere. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, moving on to teaching. Uh, so not known to many, you uh, teach at uh, CIA. And it's not like you have not enough things on your plate already by now. So why? Get stuff. That's the only way you're going to get stuff. You know, look, I love, I love teaching. I don't have the time for it. But my job is to keep my business afloat. I will do whatever it takes by hook or by crook. I will prostitute myself to keep my business going. I'll cut off an arm to keep my business going. You know, because look, my business is not making me any money. Because I tell you how much money I'm losing, right? But... You know what I feel responsible for? The people that are working with me. Especially those who are here from overseas, who have passes, who are sending money back home, whose families need it. I feel that obligation to them to keep my business running. I'll do anything to keep it running for them. So I teach at CIA because it gives me access to fresh talent. And we do hire a lot of people out of CIA. Three quarters of my team at Birdbird are CIA grads who were once my students or my interns, you know. Uh, we've got a very good relationship with CIA because of that. Whenever I, uh, like, 
you know, uh, whenever I'm looking for new positions and the people that are on waitlist don't fit those positions because they are looking for two high-ranking positions or whatever and we are just looking for entry-level positions. Yeah. Head of school at CIA, you know, my boss, Chef E. Felder, helps me to blast out to her students, mm-hmm. all batches, you know, alumni and all that. She helps me blast out. So it, it's, it's one of those recruitment strategies for me what, as well. What do, you, what do you teach over at CIA? I teach two management subjects. I teach menu development and I teach financial management. Um, if you were to take a bird eye view of the new batch of student or current batch of student now, um, how would you describe them? What are things that they did right? And what you, would you like to see more of? So, this generation of young students, I believe that they are very well exposed. They know a lot more about F&B than I did when I first came in. The selection criteria at the Culinary Institute of America is very stringent. There are at least 700 applicants for every cohort, and they only select 35 to, 35 to 40 to pick, to go through. So as you can imagine, it would be 35 to 40 of the best out of those 700. People with already a couple of years' experience working in the industry, people who have shown an ability to articulate their passion, because they go through a series of interviews as well, and people who kind of know what they want to do. So these are very motivated, very switched on students already. Uh, They are good in the sense that, I wouldn't say that they represent the general population. So they're already one, two steps ahead, you know, based on the selection process that got them there. But they are much more well exposed. They know, well, again, maybe because they have much more access to information than I did when I was, you know, their age. They know about chefs they want to work for. They know about what kind of philosophy they might want to have one day. You know, they, they, they're savvy. They're savvy. They're definitely very savvy. Uh, but like I said, the problem with the generation is that they can, not by their fault or anything, that they tend to be a little bit more impatient. They tend to feel like, if I'm paying this amount of school fees, I need a starting salary of 5000 or whatever. I've... I've I've got friends call me, yeah. I've got friends call me and say, hey, your students are fuckers. <laughs> they came to me and expected a starting salary of 5K. That's insane. So I don't, my, my friend owns a business. I don't even fucking pay myself 5K. <laughs> and this guy is like, he hasn't even graduated, but he's negotiating his first job upon graduation. He's asking for 5K. I ask him why. He says, if he thinks he's invested a lot of himself. And, uh, and, 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 and that he's, uh, you know, worked in, in some really good places and all that kind of stuff. I'm, I'm sorry, man. <laughs> I apologize on his behalf, you know. So, you know, it's easy to feel that way if you've spent so much money on school fees and, and you feel like you're ahead of all these other students of your age and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's easy to feel that way. Will you then recommend them not to go to school, not to spend so much money and use that three years to grind it up and learn? Look, I, I, I think it's a very controversial topic to talk about that because I also work for the school. That's true. Okay, well, let's, let's move on. How about yeah. that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, now, Bert, Bert, you have, you have stabilized Artichoke. You but wrote, definitely stay in school. But yeah, stay yeah, in school, yeah, correct? Definitely stay in school. <laughs> uh, you stabilized Artichoke, um, wrote a book, and then, you know, Close some operations. Close some operations. Yeah. Sustaining some sus- other operations. <laughs> and a popsicle brand and app pop. And life is good, you know? Yep. 
uh, how did Burbert came along? <laughs> Burbert came along as a way for me to give people jobs. To do, remember I said we want to develop yeah. people, give them give them more room to move up and sideways or whatever. So Burbert came as a way for me to give some people jobs. That's it. You know, uh, same thing overdose. Remember I told you about my sous chef Kel. Yeah. Kel had health issues. Kel had health issues. I was about to lose him because he developed the cardiac issue. He's a skinny motherfucker, but he had this heart palpitation thing. So his doctor told him, you cannot be a chef anymore. You cannot withstand the pressure of a high-paced, fast-paced dinner service, you know. So Kel came to discuss this with me. And he was telling me, he was about to tell me, Beyond, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to leave the industry. I said, Kel, I got some money. We've made some money at Artichoke over the last two years. Will a production job suit you? So I suppose. I said, Kel, let's open a bakery. I opened a bakery to give Kel a place to, to move into. I opened a bakery because another one of my guys, Trin Hao, had some inclination towards baking. I said, Trin Hao, I opened a bakery. Can we do this? Can you do this with Kel? Trin Hao said, yeah. We opened, we opened it so that we could give particular people who are valuable to me a room to move up. You know? Bird Bird, same thing. Open Bird Bird so that I could give another guy named Ron room to move up. He's my general manager now. You know? He's leaving me also very soon. Oh. He just got married. He just got married and he's starting to feel the pressure of the industry. Mm. You know? But not just Ron, I mean other people as well. Other people as well. So many people I want to hire, so many people I want to promote. I can't promote them all within the same organization. Right? Yeah. You know? How many, how many head chefs can I have? I need to open new businesses. Um, was it, uh, uh, you know, after learning the lessons from um, Overdoe, was it, you know, was it easier this time around with Burbert or even harder? <laughs> Opening Burbert was one of the hardest things I've done in my life. It's harder than Artichoke, you know why? Why? When I opened Artichoke, I had a lot of time to fuck up. I had a lot of time before because I, no one knew me. I had no reputation. So I could still spend a year or a first six months trying to find myself, trying to improve systems, trying to improve quality of dishes, trying to put personality into food and all that. The moment I opened Bird Bird, day one, within the week one, uh, three major food, food, uh, food publications came to review me within the first week. No chance given. No chance given. People started coming day one and judging it. People came with expectations that Bird Bird was going to be as good as Artichoke. Of course it's not going to be as good as Artichoke. Artichoke had fucking five years before Bird Bird opened to refine itself. Bird Bird is fucking new. There's a brand new crew there. Some people could have come from Artichoke. They did come from Artichoke, but come on. It's a new menu. It's a new cuisine. It's a new direction. It's a new concept. It's not going to be as good. You cannot expect it to be as good from day one. You know? So that's, that's tough as well. It's really very tough. Expectations, people's expectations are very tough. It used to be at Ang Siang, Ang Siang, right? You know, the original concept uh, seems a bit more hipsterish. Uh, neon, a lot of neon Street lights. Club lights. Artsy. Yeah. <laughs> Penises on the toilet walls, all yes. over the toilet walls. And, um, and now it has changed. So, well, why move and why the change of concept? Two questions there. It's heartbreaking. Talking about my failure at Ansiang, 
Uh, it's heartbreaking. I lost a lot of money on it. So, looks a lot. You won't even imagine how much. Reason money being I lost. the rent or rent was rent was reasonable. I got a good space. The traffic was okay. The food for traffic. Traffic was a bit tough. Good space, good rent. Traffic was a bit tough, but not not not, not bad. We overestimated the dining market. We 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 were too arrogant. This is my admission now. We were too arrogant. We had too big egos. We thought that coming from Artichoke, having so much publicity, winning all so many awards and all that kind of stuff, that we could come in and do whatever the fuck we wanted and people would, would buy into it. Uh, we wanted to do a Thai chicken concept inspired by you know roadside areas in Thailand that did what you call Isan cuisine, mm -hmm. northeastern style. Yep. So no pad thai, no tom yum soup, no mango sticky rice. It's really barbecue chicken, fried chicken, sticky rice, papaya salads, really fucking spicy tom sap soups and all that kind of stuff. You know, uh, we wanted to do that kind of thing and merge it with like a Thai dive bar, strip club, cocktail bar kind of thing. You know, really grungy upmarket street food kind of place with a very focus on a subset of food within Thai cuisine, not generic Thai cuisine. Uh, we put up ironic signboards saying palace of Thai chicken just to throw people off and almost like troll, troll people and troll ourselves, you know, make people think it's a $5 place, you know, just make it look really shady, make it look really dodgy, make it look really fucked up. We put in strip club pink color lights, we took markers and we drew penises all over in the walls and the toilet and we left the markers there for people to draw even more penises. The whole fucking toilets were covered in, in dicks and vaginas and, and, and vulgarities, you know. It was the kind of place where people had sex in the bathrooms, you know, and took drugs at the back alley. It's that kind of place. We made it that kind of place. But unfortunately, Singaporeans want to take OOTDs. Oh and sit in bright, cheerful, airy cafes and eat Eggs Benedict and, uh, and, and, and not do any of those things that we thought they might, you know, they might want to do. Uh, unfortunately, people didn't understand the Thai chicken concept and they just saw the word Thai and they came in and asked us and berated us on why we did not have Pad Thai in Tom Yam Soup. The same problem when we first started our show. Same problem, la? Yeah. same problem. But this time it really got to us. It really got to us. Because people were ordering sticky rice and when we give them a bag of sticky rice, which is what you would eat with your chicken and salad, they would say, fuck you, why is this not mango sticky rice? And we just put our head in our hands and we just want to cry every day. We just want to cry. Because no one fucking get it. No, no one fucking got it, you know? And, 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 and we just felt so stupid for thinking that they would. We don't blame them. We blame ourselves for for thinking too highly of ourselves. Can I uh, can I just add one more thing over yeah. there? Because me and Norman, we run supper club, right? Yeah. D three three five. Yeah. And uh, we we every supper club have different concepts. Yeah. Uh, there was one time we wanted to do Thai food. Yeah. No one like maybe, so usually there's like we accept ten, and usually it's fill up pretty fast. Yeah. But Japanese one, no problem. You know, like Australian desserts, no problem. When it comes to Asian food though, people are not signing up. So, I mean, that's just a side tangent thing that, you know, I want to share. That's another topic. People just, you know, associate it with uh, Golden Mile or, or mm -hmm. with, with, with $5. Mm. They think it's $5. It's, it's that exploitative mentality that, look, street food costs this much. I get it so cheap elsewhere. Why should I pay anymore? Why should I care if someone's trying to elevate the thing or, or, or put a spin on it, you know? 
So that was tough. So chicken was an enemy because chicken is also a low perceived value kind of thing. Thai concept was an enemy. The fact that we were not doing generic Thai food was the biggest shot to the heart. And people came in and they walked out because there wasn't part Thai. It just made us so demoralized every day. So we just, every night we would just stand outside and we'd look at the place and we'd look at this signboard that says Palace of Thai Chicken and this stupid Thai disco music blasting from inside <laughs> and the pink lights. And we just sat there and we scratched our heads and we asked ourselves, guys, if this was an American fried chicken place, doing American style fried chicken with fucking truffle fries. Yeah. It could even be American Chinese food. Or anything. Oh, yeah. but, but anything. I said, we just said, would it be better? And everyone just nodded their head and said, yes. Uh, this would be so much better. So we actually contemplated con changing the concept in the same space. Oh to just American. But then we decided that if we're going to change it to American, do chicken and waffles and all that kind of stuff, that wasn't the place for comfort food. Uh. It's, too, it's too dressed up CBD. Mm. It's not really a comfort food place. So we said, ah, fuck it, we have to move. So we decided to move. We decided to change the concept. Oh, and give up on our ideas of, or grand ideas of, you know, making people do body shots and all that kind of, and, 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 and give up all that debauchery, you know, that, that we had at the start. And you know what? It actually turns out that Frankel, the new concept, the new location is doing much better. And and yeah, it just it just proved to me again like, that my ideas are not always right. Uh, let's move on to something more fun. Uh, brocation. Uh, how did yeah? How did that happen? Um, you know, people come to you. You came to people. Your idea, their that was, idea. That was cool because I was cooking at a StarHub Golf Open one day. Yeah. And then I got a call. I was almost not going to pick it up, but I realized it was my producer friend, Michelle, uh, who, who, who I filmed MasterChef Asia with. So I thought, okay, this might be good. So I picked up the phone and she said, hey, Bjorn, are you interested in doing a new show? And I'm like, when? She's like, oh, October. I said, which part of October? She said, whole of October. I'm like, fuck, I'm in Japan. Whole of October. And I've already booked my flights. I've booked my hotels, everything. It's my, it's my alone trip. It's my Zen trip. Right. She was like, well, if I can entice you a little bit more, it's called the ultimate vocation. I was like, fuck yeah. <laughs> I'm like, fuck Japan, you know. <laughs> I'm in, right? Um, so I didn't even get any more details apart from that. But she said, look, I really want you on board, but I need you to impress the, 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 the stakeholders, the people who are saying yes to this show, the people who are paying for this show, and basically the directors and everyone else on the production team. So I need you to go down for a casting, you know? So we fixed up a date for me to go down and, and, and to a studio and, and just be in front of the camera and cast. And um, they asked me questions like, what's your most embarrassing thing you've ever done? Okay. Have you ever gone on a brocation with your bros? You know, uh, the kind of thing, they just elicit, elicit fun responses. Uh, I just went along with it, I joked with them. Uh, they just wanted to see how well I presented myself on screen, whether or not, um, I had too strong or thick of a Singaporean accent, or they, they just wanted to see, they just wanted to suss out how I looked on camera. Yeah. Uh, in the end, what, what clinched me the thing is I sang them the Kazakhstan National Anthem, <laughs> which I memorized from watching Borat like 25 times. Uh, and at the end of the casting, they said, Bjorn, uh, we want you. We're not, we're not supposed to tell you offhand, but be prepared to give up your October schedule because we want you. And I found out later on that they actually we're looking for celebrities, and I'm not a celebrity, right? I'm a, a, like 
fucking what five people on my on my on my Instagram following you know, whatever right the other people that they got were like fucking 1.5 million followers oh. on Instagram they were like fucking sensations right you know we we had we needed security when we were in Hong Kong walking down the street because girls were fucking throwing themselves at right. the, at these guys seriously no fucking kidding the people were screaming and fucking going crazy and crying okay in front of them they're fucking nuts they're fucking nuts we got the Kanye West of Malaysia we got the Ryan Seacrest of Thailand and we got the fucking Justin Timberlake of Philippines right. and you got fucking Bjorn Chan from Singapore you know so uh, anyway so I found out that they actually casted in Singapore for models and actors and people in the entertainment industry with a strong fan base and following and all that but what they found was good looking people who were funny and all that but they didn't find a jackass they were looking for a jackass you know so they finally found a jackass in me so this ah fuck it lah let's just take Bjorn he's got like zero fans but okay let's get him does this whole TV thing, you know, uh, is something that you plan for or is just sort of fall into place? I never planned for this. I never planned for this. I, I rejected a lot of TV things. Uh, you know, I was actually approached to do Eat List Star. Oh. In the first season. You mean to... To, 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 to take part in all that? I, oh. I, I didn't have time. La. I didn't have time. I thought it was a cool idea, but I didn't have time. And uh, why the hell did I, you I, 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 I'm not good on camera. I, I, I don't think I'll ever have right. my own TV show. I, I'm not good on camera. Right. Oh, you're uh, really a master chef, Elista, what the hell? Guess, judge, judge, whatever, but okay. I'm not, not my, I'm not, I'm not like that kind of quality. I don't speak that well. I don't, you know, I don't know. I got a resting, I got a resting fucker face. <laughs> okay. You know, I got. It's a new term for, for, for yeah, us today. Yeah, resting, resting dick face. So I don't, I don't do that well. I, I my voice sounds a lot better nowadays. Mm -hmm. Because uh, I've been going for like singing lessons and all that kind oh, of stuff. You, okay. Yeah, I do. But I used to speak even worse than this. I, I sounded like my voice came from my stomach, or I like, like there was like a piece of cotton wool, or there was a fucking potato in my throat. The way that I used to speak. Mm. So I spoke even worse than this. Uh, it's a lot better now. But I never actually considered a TV career or anything like that. I do it because it comes along and whatever you know. Yeah. And what about writing? I mean, would you say? That, I mean, you. I read some of the stuff and time out, pretty good. Um, is, is it from those marketing days? Were you good at writing or how did? I don't know. I, I write the way that I speak. Which is usually what I do then. My, my grammar is like, no, it's no. off to... When I wrote my book, right? When yeah. I wrote my book, what I did was I just went to, you know, I checked into a hotel in, on the Gold Coast in Australia. Uh, I, I pulled out my phone, put the voice recorder on and I just spoke into it. And then I'd play it back and type it out, you know. And then from there, I would correct my grammar. I would string sentences together a bit better. I might swap things around, you know. Uh, but in general, the voice that you see on the book is exactly the voice that you'll hear if you talk to me. So I did not write it like a writer. I wrote it like a person speaking. No, which makes it very easy to read. Yeah. Um, and and now moving, you have a little one. Yeah, <laughs> you're turning into father. Yeah, um, a little bit on relationships. Just one, just one quick question on you know how do you balance that bow character you know uh, in, in in the relationship? <laughs> if that is a problem at all, or if it is, my wife and I are very different. Like if I could eat KFC every day, I'd eat KFC. Right, I mean. Look at my figure, man. Seriously, right? This, 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 this gut here does not come from eating salad, right? 
My wife is a fucking yoga instructor. She eats seeds and nuts. Uh, where's my coffee table? It's like, there's the fucking raw nuts there. That's what she eats, right? She eats the kind of shit. Uh, she's got like, she does juice cleanse subscriptions. I haven't even heard of that. No, me too. Like, what the fuck? You know, so she and I are so completely different, but we, you know, we get along because of that. Uh, so how do I balance that character? I suppose, you know... Uh, because it, of the difference. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, now with a little one coming, um, yeah. how has that changed your outlook towards cooking and um, business? With a little one coming, how the... Yeah, it's, it's, it's changed a lot. I mean... Now, I understand what my guys go through when they themselves get married and they themselves have, you know, I mean, it just made, makes me more aware. It makes my wife and I more aware of, of, of their challenges, you know, and uh, makes us want to do more for them. Lah. So we've come up with uh, extra things like parental care leave, uh, parental care benefits and all that kind of stuff for, for our guys, which are... Not usually that common in the industry, but we've, we've come up with that, you know. Um, child care leave, parental care leave, on top of annual leave. It, it was baby steps, uh, baby steps. It's changed our, you know, our free time. The ability for some of our staff maybe to go on flexible work hours and all that kind of stuff, times when they need it. So it... I am the last one of my good group of friends to, to have a kid. I'm always the last one to do anything. I was the last one to graduate from university. I was the last one to get married. I was the last one to have a kid and all that. I'm, you know, they're all more successful than me and all that. But finally, I'm there and, you know, I, I'm looking forward to it. I'm a, bit, I'm a bit afraid, you know. So I'm bad with kids. They cry the moment they see me. I look like a bad guy to them. You know, so I don't know how it's going to happen. I, I'm, afraid to, I'm afraid to carry kids. So I don't know if I'll break them or anything, you know. So it will, it's interesting how this is going to turn out. Right. Yeah. Okay, so some um, quick quick questions. Um, any books or documentary you like to recommend? Ooh. I do not read books. Last book I read was a comic called Penis Pokey. Yeah, but don't read that. Okay, no. Uh... It was a book with a hole that you could put your penis to. Oh. You flip the pages, then the penis comes out like an elephant trunk or something like that. Wow. Yeah, uh, someone gave it to me. Okay. Uh, oh, I read the Borat book. This. Yeah, I, I, bought, I bought this Borat book. Uh, yeah, I don't read books, man. I, I'm not smart enough like that. To, to, I cannot get past the first chapter of a novel. So I stopped trying. Stopped trying. Uh, documentaries. Um, look, I mean, I watch a lot of food shows. I watch History Channel. I watch... You know, crime and investigation, whatever. I, I I need to zone out when I come home at night. I can't go straight to sleep, so I watch a bit of TV. Um, I can't tell you in particular what. That's fine. What, what's that? I just browse. That's fine. I just surf. Uh, what have you bought recently under one hundred dollars that have impacted you the most? I just had Jollibee okay. three, three days ago. It's the first time I had Jollibee. Is the best. Jollibee is fucking awesome. Like, I've never wanted to join the queue. So, same thing. My wife queued for me. Yeah, she was all pregnant and all that. She was queuing for me. She got so she, priority she, queue. She, like, like, we spent less than $100 on Jolly Beer. It was the best fucking thing I've had in okay. a long time. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
what are the three favorite dishes in Singapore that you bring your overseas friends to taste? Oh, oh. shit. Okay, okay. We were just talking to some people about this last night. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, look, I mean, o- overseas friends come to Singapore. I always bring them to uh, Candlenut. Okay. You know, Candlenut. Uh, really good food over there. Uh, Candlenut. Yeah. Is that a restaurant? It's a, it's a very good restaurant. It's a okay. very good restaurant. They've just relocated the Dempsey. Uh, always bring them there. What, what what dishes would you? It's like a Pranakan restaurant, and they keep changing their menus. Oh, like okay. Omakase, they call it Amakase. Okay. Amakase, a menu. Right, candlenut. You know, candlenut. Um, I one of my favorite dishes in Singapore. I can't get it anymore. Oh, is the raw fish salad. Oh, the one in Chinatown. Yeah, yeah. Oh yes, the one that you can't eat because then people were poisoned with worms and all that kind of stuff. So oh, yeah. can't eat it there now. So I I did that in Copenhagen. When mm. I when I had to do a Singapore dish in Copenhagen, I did that dish, you know. Um, so that was it's a great dish. Kind of like ceviche. Oh, love it. Better. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Love it. So fresh. So mm-hmm. you know. So light. So fresh. What fish will you use to 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 do that? That's always either snakehead or wolf herring. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and because it's freshwater fish and worms and all that kind of stuff. You know? I mean, some people are doing it with salmon and all that nowadays. Lah, but, you know, it's still got to be that kind of fish. When I did it in uh, Copenhagen, we used uh, swordfish, which oh. is a very nice substitute. We kind of cured it a little bit in salt and sugar to tighten up the flesh first, then we sliced it. Yeah, so that was, that was good. So people should do it with swordfish in Singapore, then we can still have it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and last one? And last one, oh my goodness. Uh, what, what would I bring people to eat? Yeah. Or what dish is it? Yeah, dish or restaurant. Dish or restaurant. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm biased. Like, it's got to be whatever I like the most. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and I always bring people to eat chicken rice. Like, because it's my... It's I, I sound so... Where? Fucking typically Singaporean by saying this. I'm like basic basic bro Singaporean guy if I say chicken rice. But I'm going to say chicken rice. <laughs> you know? Um, I, I'm... Again, I'm a fucking cheap date. I don't have my... I don't... I don't I'm not a, like a food geek where I know exactly my favorite place. In oh, no, okay. Forever. I'm like any, anywhere, you know, a fucking chicken rice from 7-Eleven microwave on again. No. Oh, no. Uh, look, anywhere chicken rice, but okay, if I, if I really could go anywhere, it'd be nearby, la, near my place, uh, Tupayo, Lorong Ford. There's a place called Wee Nam Ki. Wee Nam Ki. You know, Wee Nam Ki. Uh, it's a soy chicken rice. Okay. Uh, like, that's really good. Uh, I also just had this one at Upper Thompson, like last week. It's called Kampung Chicken Rice or something like that. Uh, that was really good as well. Do you have the liver too? No, I don't. I'm. I'm. I don't eat like awful. Okay. I'm, I'm afraid. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when you think of the word successful, who came into your mind and why? Oh, I think I think many people are successful. I don't think you can define success in one way over another way. Uh, I think people who manage to just you know people who live so called by the book unremarkable lives, but who've managed to keep their families happy, who managed to raise a family and 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 give back to community and all that. You know, uh, simple everyday people are successful. You know, I I think as long as you're a functional member of society, you are successful. Success is not defined by how many how many people you employ, how much money you make, how many jobs you have, or how many times you're on TV or whatever. It's about what kind of impact have you made on other people's lives. You know. Sorry, I just kind of went away from that question. No, it's totally fine. Yeah. And uh, I think some some good answers are the word. Uh, I think someone used redefine. Redefine. Yeah. yeah. Um, are there any routines or habits that you find important? Morning or Ooh. evening? No. Uh, I usually wake up to a shock every morning because I, I wake up to like 55 unmissed 
missed SMSs and WhatsApp messages and yeah. calls and all that, half of which are of urgent nature. So I do not wake up slowly and gradually. I wake up and call someone even before I brush my teeth. That's how it is every day. Um, I feel that routine-wise, I mean, it's not like daily routine or what, but I do feel like good solo travel is very good for the soul, very good for the mind. I've spoken about that before. So I think that's a good routine that I have maybe once, twice a year. Yeah. Um, what are some of the most common misconceptions about you or your work? People think I'm rich. People think that uh, I... I, I uh, I, I live a very fun life or, or yeah actually I live a fun life I, I like my life but people think that it's great fun that it's uh, that 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 I'm living out my passion and all that but they don't know the other kind of shit that I deal with they don't know about me chasing people for money and and and, and me being threatened to be sued and me fighting off lawsuits for for things like the name Nanapop and all that kind of stuff because it offends people. People don't know about all these, all these things that go on, you know. They think that it's just all glitz and glamour and oh my goodness and you know, Beyond's living it, living the good life and all that. They don't realize I fucking had a heart attack, you know, three years ago. They don't realize that I got diabetes and high blood pressure and, and, and I'll probably die younger than everyone else, you know. Yeah. Are there any say or do for the audience? Uh, or questions you want to ask, or you know, a challenge, or um, of course, they would definitely go to your restaurant and eat and buy your book in the yeah, restaurant. <laughs> Bullshit, it's overrated, overpriced, overhyped. Don't go somewhere else. Um, but do definitely um, do do slow it down. You know, I, I tell this to my students at the end of every semester when I say bye to them. I say, look, life is long. You're all always in a rush. But if you just spend one more year doing what you love, develop yourself, don't rush into the first job that pays you the most. I know it sounds anti-productive, but life is a very good evening play. You know, life is a very good equalizer. And even though you might feel like you're 25 years old this year, and life is very short and you have to rush, by the time you're 27, you just spend two years feeling like the most fucking, this is going to feel like the most long two years of your life. And at 27, you're going to ask yourself, what the fuck did I just do? You know, in the last very long two years. It's just take the time. If you want to go travel for a year, go travel for a year. I mean, if you have the resources to do it, don't, 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 you know. Break the bank. Yeah, don't break the bank. Don't, don't do things that you cannot afford, you know. But if you, if you want to go and take a shitty job with a shittier pay for the next year, you can afford to do it now. Just because it gives you that, that intrinsic satisfaction or it's able to let you spend a bit more time with people that matter and all that. Do it now because you have so many more years to catch up. You have so many years to catch up. Like, I've been rushing in everything that I've been doing. I'm fucking 35, coming 35 right now. And I'm like, what the fuck am I going to do for the next 20 years of my life now? I don't even know anymore. Um, where can people find you or your projects on the interweb? You can find my work on like pornhub.com. You can find my yeah no, no, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, yeah, you can you can you can find me at, at, on on Instagram at at Bjorn Shen. 
That's it. BJR and okay. SHEN. Finally, my fan base might grow from like three to like seven. Um, and you can uh, find, you can watch me on TV. Yeah. Here and there. And you, like I said, you can watch, you can, yeah, you can watch my soft one videos on onehub.com. All right. Well done. Hey folks, it's over. So all show notes, links, books can be found on the website, brianvictor.com. If you have any misfits you would like to hear from, feel free to drop me an email. In the coming weeks, we have with us an actor, a director, as well as a theater uh, guy, and he has made it all the way to Hollywood. If you want to stay updated, you can come on the website and sign up for mailing list or um, you can also subscribe to the podcast however way you like to do it. And again, I wish you guys have a fantastic 2017 ahead.